This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to a special automated edition of Buckeye Talk. We're going to talk Tabor Johnson. We're going to talk our linebackers depth chart breakdown. We're going to each give our list of the top 10 Ohio State football players right now. And then we're going to have a robot interview. Doug Maurice, Bill Landis, and Tim Bielek, your Ohio State coverage team for Cleveland.com. I did an interview earlier Wednesday to celebrate Valentine's Day with Professor David Woods, who is a robot expert from Ohio State. And I did this because a video came out this week of a robot dog opening a door, and 25 of you tweeted it to me <laughs> to freak me out, to either try to freak me out or to empathize and say, we are freaked out together. Some of you taunted me with it. Others of you used it as an opportunity for us as Buckeye Talk Nation to bond over our fear of robots taking over the world. So in that vein, I wanted to talk to an expert about robots taking over the world. So we're going to drop that into this podcast. What I think we're going to do is do our top 10 Buckeyes, talk Tabor Johnson, talk the linebackers, then we'll drop in the robot part. If you don't <laughs> like robot talk, you can fast forward, and then we'll come back and get to your questions because we have a lot of good questions. So that's where we stand. And I'll just give you this tease about the thing, about the interview. He didn't say that robots are going to kill us all, but he also didn't say <laughs> that he robots. He did not say? He did not say that robots are going to kill us all. I'm going to reassure you that robots are not going to take over the world. Okay. On the other hand, I'm going to scare you because people will deploy more of these capabilities and they're doing it in ways that have real risk. All right. We have a lot of good questions, but let's talk quickly about the news of the week before we get to our breakdowns, which is a new quarterbacks coach. And I, I guess I was sort of like surprised for a moment and then immediately said, oh, well, nobody should be surprised. But I didn't think of it, and I don't think any of us thought of it. And it's because he was already here, and it's Taver Johnson who was on Jim Trestle's staff for, I think, five seasons and is back as the quarterback's coach. Tim, he was not on the list you did, right? Right. He was, like you said, guy. people forgetting about him. I immediately forgot about him as well. And it took a minute after the news process. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Aver Johnson. I remember him. I will say, and I might have this wrong, but I think he 
Because so he was with Trestle, I think, for four years, and then he was on Luke Fickle's staff in 2011. Because Luke Fickle kept the whole Trestle staff. And then when Urban Meyer got here, and we were trying to figure out who he might keep, it became apparent that he was going to keep Luke Fickle and Mike Vrabel. And then there was a time when we thought he might keep Tavor Johnson. And Tavor Johnson ended up going to Arkansas to be uh, a coach there. But I think he was under consideration, briefly at least, to stick around here. And then the other thing is, he was working at Temple, which is not exactly like an Urban Meyer breeding ground because Steve Adazio was at Temple, but now he's at Boston College. But like Zach Smith coached at Temple for a little bit, and there's at least a little bit of a connection there. So in the end, not a shock for Tabor, to have Tabor Johnson here. Do we have any read on what can, whether he can be as good as Kerry Combs? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this on the drive over here. Like, I, how much credit do you give Kerry Combs for like turning high four and five star prospects into NFL cornerbacks? Like, you give him some. I think he's a pretty good developmental corners coach. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen whether or not Tavor Johnson is. But I'm more concerned about the recruiting aspect of all this. And Tavor Johnson recruited Northeast Ohio really well, right when he was here before. He was their Cleveland guy, right? So and then Tony Alford's their Cleveland guy now. So I don't. I think Tavor Johnson will probably work Southwest Ohio like Kerry Combs did. Um, and maybe up into Detroit too, but um, he seems like he has a decent recruiting track record. So that if I'm an Ohio State fan, that's really all I would care about. Because um, I also think it's possible that he might be cornerbacks coach, like in name only, and was hired first and foremost because he can recruit. And coaching the secondary will be a three man operation between Shiano, Alex Grinch, and Tabor Johnson. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think a lot of people think that. I mean. I think Urban Meyer called Kerry Combs, and Greg Schiano, I think, did basically call him as good of a cornerbacks coach as there, as there was in America, that recruiting matters most. We know that. Kerry Combs was very good at recruiting. Um, but it feels – I mean, obviously they developed because not every four- and five-star right. recruit becomes a first-round NFL draft pick. Sure. And he's going to have five and five years. Uh, Chimdi Chekwa played for Tavor Johnson. Malcolm Jenkins played for Tavor Johnson. He had some good players here as well. But – I'll just say this. Like, I don't think he's quite as good because I think Kerry Combs was excellent. And so the one thing that I don't think is fair to do, and I think it's easy to do a lot of times, is like Ohio State loses a coach and then Ohio State hires a coach. And you're like, hey, their coach is great, like, because Ohio State hired him. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's just like recruiting. It's like, oh, what is this kid a four star? It's like, well, if he committed to Ohio State, he must be a four star. And, like, his rating goes up because Ohio State's interested in him. So Tavers Johnson's reputation goes up because Ohio State's interested in him. But after Ohio State, he went to Arkansas, didn't go great there. Then he was at Purdue, didn't go great there. I don't know what Temple did last year. I don't think they were great. So, like, that's fine. And and he was good here. I remember when he got hired here because I was reading the story that I wrote in 2007 when he got hired by Jim Tressel. He was going to take a job with the Oakland Raiders and and instead came to Ohio State. He had been a Mac guy, I think, before that. So I think it's good. I think it's good. He's a really nice guy. And I'm going to, there's a quick little story, which is in the hallway of the Woody Hayes Athletic Center, there is a lot of military memorabilia um, of military members overseas. Uh, who are Buckeyes, who are Buckeye fans, who are holding up Ohio State flags or doing OHIO. Ohio State very much honors 
uh, the military in the Woody Hayes Athletic Center, in its headquarters. And there is a photo of, uh, I believe, I think he's a, a pilot from, I think, like World War II that looks exactly like Taver Johnson. Mm. And every time I walk past it, Taver Johnson hasn't been here since 2011. Every time I walk past that photo, I look and say, oh, look, that's Taver Johnson. And now Taver Johnson is back. And I want to take Taver Johnson into the hallway and say, this guy looks just like you, doesn't he? <laughs> and I think perhaps, Tim, that could be a Black Mirror episode. That I'm not 100% sure that Taver Johnson wasn't also a fighter pilot during World War II. Well, kind of come up. You, you mentioned Black Mirror bringing it full circle. I'll get back to Taver in a second. There was a Black Mirror episode about killer robot dogs. Oh, Although okay. that's dystopian future, but I have not seen that yet. I'll have to at some point. But getting back to Tabor, what I think helps him is that he's been here before. Yeah. Granted, under a different coach. Granted, it was a, it was six, seven years ago that he was here. But it helps Tabor that he's been here before. And you mentioned the track record: Malcolm Jenkins, Chimji Chukwa. Chukwa, I don't believe, was a high recruit. He was maybe a three-star guy. Developed. Travis Howard was another guy who played very well, kind of at the end of Tabor Johnson's tenure. So he's developed some guys. You can't get. You mentioned it's hard to replace Kerry Collins because how good he was. But considering what Tabor Johnson did at Ohio State before, pretty good hire. And I think he's an energy guy. If mm-hmm. I remember him correctly, too, it's like, again, some coaches just bring that a little bit more than others. I think he brings that more than others. Nobody brings it as much as Kerry Combs, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. No one can argue with it. No one can yeah. argue with it. But I'm not gonna just say like, oh. Everything's perfect. Yeah, like they're just as good because we can't. I mean, we just can't live in that world. That's not a fair. That's not a fair world. Maybe he'll be even better. But like, I'm gonna wait a little bit and see if five years from now they have five more first round draft picks. Yeah, that's not like that's not totally what I meant when I said like part of the reason Kerry Combs is good is because the players are really good. I just meant that like the defense. Part of the reason they have first round corners is because they play an NFL style cover sure. system, and like that's not changing. No. So that's all I meant, is that yeah. Kerry Combs, they made a switch in 2014. Kerry Combs started coaching press man coverage. That's going to continue as long as Urban Meyer is the head coach at Ohio State, regardless of who the quarterback's coach Correct. is. Correct, correct. And I think he will be a good recruiter for them, and I think uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. So, all right. Best hire ever. <laughs> Was that a little more condensed? Landis, just to, be, yeah. to be honest here, yeah. Landis is a little worried about... Uh, the, 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 what would be the word? The wasted time on this podcast that allows, what, many podcasts are an hour. This probably should be an hour and a half podcast that balloons to a two hour podcast. Yeah. So you would like to reduce, you want to squeeze a little air out of the balloon. Yeah, which is, it's odd to say on a, in an episode in which we have a half hour robot interview. (laughs) Correct. So we're going to – I mean what we're going to do going forward is just kind of shrink the football talk to leave enough time for robots and french fries. I think – did we forget – no, we just didn't – we didn't do a position group breakdown last week because it was signing. Signing there, right. Yeah. Yeah. But that was – we only missed one week of it, right? I Correct. think. Okay. It's also possible we've done linebackers and I forgot about it. Yeah, I forgot that we were doing <laughs> position group breakdowns. 
So I was like, I thought we were done with that. <clears throat> but I think we're not done. Tim, I think, I actually remembers. So Tim says we haven't done linebackers or defensive line. Yeah, we start. We finished the offense like two weeks ago, and then we went to secondary because I think that was the, the week of the the week oh, after right. Combs left right. oh, when yeah. we talked secondary, and I kind of brought up the list of replacements. So okay. we've got linebackers this week. Next week will be defensive line for. We'll go heavy. We'll go heavy on defensive line next week. Yeah. But we're going to talk linebacker depth chart right now. Our projection, and I think I did that one, mm-hmm. and maybe you guys might have disagreed a little bit, but I put Baron Browning in the middle as the starter with Keandre Jones and Malik Harrison outside and Tuff Borland as the backup to Baron Browning in the middle with the caveat of like almost all four of those guys might be starters in some way. Um, and then Dante Booker is a wild card as a fifth-year senior um, who's just had a kind of a strange career, but if he's around, you expect that he would play, although he's also a guy who sort of lost his starting job uh, during the year. Um, and then they have Pete Werner as a guy who works in. They have they have some young guys, but they also don't have a million guys. They have a, have had a couple guys hurt. You know, Jerome Baker leaving early. Justin Hilliard's kind of in a weird spot as a five-star guy who has had some injuries and and. When he got here, I remember doing a story, and this is how this stuff goes all the time. That recruiting class was guys who would be entering their fourth year right now was Justin Hilliard, Nick Connor, and Jerome Baker. And I remember doing a story, their first camp, around the idea of like, hey, you three guys are all here. You can sort of see the positioning ahead of you. Um Boy, it sure looks like we may see a day where where the three starting linebackers are Justin Hilliard, Jerome Baker, and Nick Connor. And here we are, and this is how it goes. It's almost a perfect illustration. Jerome Baker is gone because he had a very good three-year career that was so good he left for the NFL. Justin Hilliard is here and hasn't been a starter yet, but has contributed on special teams because he's had some injuries and it just hasn't gone as you would have expected. And Nick Connors basically been hurt his whole career and probably will never play here. So it's like one and a half for three, which <laughs> basically, I mean, again, when you talk in recruiting classes, that's almost every, that's what they always talk about. One guy will be great. One guy will play some and help you a little bit. And another guy, it just won't work out. And that's exactly yep. what happened with those three. But Justin Hilliard is just an interesting thing to consider because at the moment, and before we get to the starters, like, are you guys, how are you factoring Justin Hilliard into this at this point? A guy who was a five-star recruit, but in his he's entering his fourth year and just hasn't been able to do it yet. I'm, I'm not really factoring. And, and it's, he tore each of his biceps, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not that he's not a good player. Um, I think, like, he had two injuries that ended his seasons. Um, and I'd imagine injuries that are difficult, to, really difficult to come back from, especially a position, position where you have to tackle the way that they have to tackle. Um, but I, I don't, I don't factor him really at all. I think he's a special teams guy. Um, I think maybe like at best he's probably like the fifth linebacker if you want to just list them. Yeah. In order of talent or or importance, yeah, I think he's probably fifth. Right. And that's that might be a little optimistic. And it's one of those things. I mean it. You know, you can find an example for almost every kind of career path. But, and and he wasn't hurt for as long, but there was a time when Marshawn Lattimore was a really big recruit who had injury problems, so you weren't sure what he was going to do. And then he played one year, went to the draft, and was the NFL Rookie of the Year. Yeah. So if Justin Hilliard is, boom, 
healthy and boom, finally able to be the guy you thought he could be. Who knows? Now, I'm not predicting that, but you can find examples of guys who out of nowhere all of a sudden burst on the scene. Speaking of bursting on the scene, Baron Browning played as a true freshman on special teams, saw some defensive snaps and blowouts, a little bit here and there. Tim, A, do you expect him to start? And B, do you think it makes most sense to slot him in at the moment at middle linebacker? Or would it make more sense to say, well, tough Borland was pretty established there. Let's slot Baron Browning in at outside linebacker. But first, do you think he'll start? Yes, I think he'll start. I think he's too talented and too athletic not to start. And kind of to go to your second question, it's going to depend on the matchups. For teams like TCU, I expect Browning will be in the middle against those more athletic teams. And then when you go to the pro-style teams like your Michigan State's, your Michigan's, it'll be tough Borland in the middle. You'll probably slide uh, Browning outside along with Malik Harrison. It's just going to depend on matchups. But I think Browning, we saw a little bit last year, too athletic too talented to not get on the field this season as a starter. Who, if you, Bill, if you had to list, you just said you would have put Hilliard sort of fifth Mm -hmm. if you were ranking linebackers. Where would you rank Baron Browning? One. Okay. And I don't, I actually don't think it's close. And I know it's probably a little crazy to say because he actually hasn't played all that much. No. It's, it's on, it's like, um, potential. So, but I would put him one. But he's a five-star guy who's like a top 10 national recruit who seemed to lay down that freshman year that you want. Yeah, no, I think yeah, he he was good on special teams and he he was really good on kick coverage a couple of times I thought or not kick coverage um punt coverage. Um yeah, no, he had he had maybe not the the splashy freshman year that you would expect. Like he didn't have Rayquan McMillan's freshman year. Right. Um but good enough in my mind that I yeah, I put him on. This is a guy that you have liked from the get-go and a guy who did play a lot last year. Malik Harrison Mm-hmm. Where where do you think he is in his career arc? And if we were ranking linebackers, is he your number two linebacker right now? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's only because like there's there's nothing really coming back in terms of experience other than Tough Borland. And I I would in terms of like who I like and who I think has the highest ceiling. I think Tough Borland is probably fourth on my list. I like Baron Browning, Malik Harrison, and Keandre Jones all above him because I think they're better athletes. Um, but I do think Malik Harrison was probably not as good as I thought he'd be last year, or at least didn't appear as ready as I thought he would last year. And he did play a, a pretty decent amount. He played a lot. Um, but he is, I mean, he was in his second year, and he was not, like, he didn't come here as, like, a ready-made linebacker. He came here, like, as a quarterback and, like, a guy who played all over the place on defense because he was the best athlete on his high school team. So in hindsight, it's not totally surprising that he wasn't maybe quite ready to, to take a, a, a bigger role as a starting linebacker. But... I love Malik Harrison as like a third down pass rusher, stand up like Jack linebacker, whatever you want to call it. We saw what he did with him. We put him standing up either in the middle or on the outside. I love him in that role, and I think he's going to do a lot of that. And I think that's how you see like the rotation starting to take form with the linebacker position. Is that Malik Harrison maybe is more of a situational guy, but in those situations, third down pass rush, I think he's really good. Tim Tough Borland is a guy who basically took over the starting middle linebacker job. Um, in the middle of last season, Chris Worley opened last year as a starter at middle linebacker. They had some injuries to Worley. Then they had Dante Booker injuries, and Jerome Baker missed a game. Tough Borland played a lot. Tough Borland led this team in tackles in a couple games. 
just like the way that we're talking about Tuff Borland, the fact that when I did the depth chart and we did the depth chart, I didn't list him as the sure thing starting middle linebacker. Are we giving him short shrift or is that a fair assessment just with the other guys they have? Is it okay to not necessarily be thinking of Tuff Borland as an every down starting middle linebacker? I think that's okay, but I think it's more so the guys on the depth chart more so than Borland. Borland is not a guy who's going to wow you with athleticism, but when you get him in run situations, you play him against run-heavy teams, or you get him on third de- third and short, he's just going to make tackles. It's just what he does. He's a guy who just makes tackles. He's your throwback, classic middle linebacker who's just going to control, control the run game. And he came in in a spot where Ohio State really needed someone to step in a middle linebacker, help stabilize things when that group was you know, having some problems. Starting that Michigan State game when he got to when he moved to middle linebacker, that defense got much better as far as you know controlling the run game, which I think is paramount to what Ohio State always wants to do defensively. And that's always a thing at middle linebacker. I mean, I think it was, I think it was Raquan Mil- McMillan. I think I remember like joking with him like his sophomore year about like just like catching running backs. It's like yeah. you've got to have somebody who can sort of stand in the hole if you're playing that kind of team and catch a running back so that he gets two or three yards instead of five or six. And someone's got to do it, and you've got to be able to like make a run fit and step up and be a sure tackler. And that's an important thing, and it's funny, and the way you're talking about this, Tim, I mean, honestly, the different offenses you face, the linebacker job is almost a different position, depending on who you're facing. Mm-hmm. So I think it does make a lot of sense to say, well, you know, it's almost like a in basketball, like you're, you know, we're going to play our small lineup, or we're going to play our big lineup, depending on matchups. You don't just, you don't just have to trot tough Borland out there against a spread team and ask him to cover like a slot receiver all day. Yeah. But if you're gonna, if you, if a team's gonna line up with two tight ends and a fullback, then put tough Borland on the field because he's going to do a really good job stopping the run. So, d- do you think? As we think about Keandre Jones and Malik Harrison and Baron Browning and Tuff Borland and Dante Booker and Pete Warner and Justin Hilliard, this group overall, as coached <laughs> by our guy, <laughs> Billy D, is this a good group? Because last year we were wrong. Mm-hmm. And I helped lead the charge on us being wrong, but we were all wrong because we did a video before last season about like how the linebackers might be as good as the defensive line. Like it was this stacked defensive line with all these guys. And we were like, Booker, Baker, and Worley, they might be just as good. And it was like, no, they weren't. Like Baker didn't have a great year. Worley was, in the end, I think everybody would agree, Worley was playing out of position. Booker got hurt and ended up losing his job. The group at the end of the year looked very different than they did at the beginning of the year. And the play of that group, as coached by Bill Davis, helped contribute to their defensive problems when they had problems. So we overestimated the linebackers last year. I think that's absolute fact. Yeah. We sort of got that wrong. How This group, however, and they have a chance to deploy these guys in different ways. How good's this group? How good's the overall group? I think better than la- deeper than last year. I like its versatility, mostly because of Baron Browning's ability to play inside and outside. I think that the one thing in, that they didn't have clearly last year, which is why they had to make the switch to Tough Borland, is they didn't they didn't have two guys who could play middle linebacker, which I think then limited how much you could truly rotate it at the position. 
Now they have Borland, who Tim talked about, and they have Baron Browning who can play in the middle. Maybe they just weren't comfortable playing Baron Browning as a true freshman in the middle last year. Maybe he had to get a little bigger. Um, but I think with those two guys and Browning's ability to play inside and outside and move around the formation, to, and I think he can cover guys in the slot. He was a defensive end linebacker and played in the secondary in high school. He played all over the place. I think he's a freak. Um, that makes this group more versatile, and I think will allow you to be fresher at the position and rotate more guys in. And maybe the the start, like the, the top end, like isn't quite as good on an individual level as Jerome Baker and Chris Worley, but I think it's a deeper and more versatile group. Tim, why do you think maybe we were off a little bit on the linebackers last year? Well, I think part of it starts again with middle linebacker, with Chris Worley moving from outside linebacker to middle linebacker, and that's an adjustment for him because his game is more suited to outside, and they didn't have a true inside guy, and they weren't ready to play tough Borland as of yet. And then Jerome Baker kind of wasn't as good as wasn't as good as he was in 2016. By the end, he looked much more like himself by the end, particularly with the Big Ten Championship game where he, I think he had like 16 tackles. And Dante Booker, uh, you know, we, he's had the injury concerns. He didn't play as well. I think just in general with this group, there's more potential, in particular with Baron Browning. If Booker goes to the bench, you're going to have an entire new group of starting linebackers. So I'm curious how they're going to line up and how it's going to look. Coach didn't change. Um, facts. Facts. <laughs> Although, maybe it did, because uh, Greg Schiano can coach linebackers. That's true. Yeah, we don't have official coaching roles for Grinch and Schiano yet, so I'm sure, I'm sure that all that reshuffling is still yet to be decided yet. Yeah, maybe Bill Davis will be like the... Uh, Bill Davis is the backup inside linebackers coach. <laughs> like, he coaches like... He just gets, like, the fifth best linebacker on the roster and just coaches the heck out of that guy. Yeah. And then the other four coaches coach the rest of the defense. <laughs> um, all right, do you guys want to do our top tens? Yeah. So this is an exercise we wanted to do because it's February, and this is the kind of thing you do in February. But I think it, it'll give you an idea of where our heads are at with this team right now. And just me making the list... Um, and we're going to get in, I think before spring football in the next couple weeks, we'll get into some more stuff about this team being a national championship contender and how people are viewing this team and what they have back, what they have that they, they've added, the expectations for this team, where they'll be better, that kind of thing. Um, but I think sometimes in breaking down the players, it gives you a sense of the team. And so we are doing our top 10 Ohio State football players right now. Sort of whatever that means to you. I think it's a mix of past production and potential. Um, so, so our lists will differ a little bit. But before we get to our lists, what was your – as you made your list, what was your overall impression of your list? Uh, like slightly underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at the top, really good, but then when you started getting to, like, five, you're like, eh, I don't know. Like, these guys have been around for a while, and I'm not really wowed by this list. Like, I think this team is a legitimate national championship contender, but this is their sixth best player? Like, yeah, I was doing that. Like, as opposed to, because there were times last year when it's like, well, there's, you know, you go through the defensive line, and you throw in Denzel yeah. Ward, and, um, you know, I don't know, JT Barrett. And a couple of the receivers, and Billy Price, and Jamarco Jones, and you're like, yeah, this is, you know, they have 11 guys. Is it 11, Tim, going to the combine? Uh, yeah. 11? Ele- 11. 11, yeah. Second most to Alabama. I believe 
that's not, it's now 50 guys since Urban Meyer's been at Ohio State that have gone to the Combine. Okay, so 11 guys going to the Combine, that's that's like your your 10 best players are probably somewhere in that list, right? And there'd, there'd yeah. be a couple who, you know, Nick Bosa would have been on that list last year and he's still on the team. But, but like, that's a pretty good list. Like, I would think at the moment my list of 10 would not match the list of 10 that you would have ended the season with, which is sort of the whole point. Mm-hmm. But, for instance, in 2015, if we were doing this list, and maybe we did do this list, we did. in February of 2015, after they won the national championship, you'd do the top 10, and it's like, oh, you know, who's your eighth best player? Oh, my eighth best player is Michael Thomas. Yeah. Oh, you mean the guy who's going to be the best rookie receiver in the history of the NFL? He's the eighth best player on this team? Yeah. Yeah. So that so sometimes that's where you are, and that's just that's just not exactly where they are right now. Mm-hmm. Like they might get there, but that's not where they are right now. So let's just start. We'll just start from the bottom. Okay. Say who your tenth is, and obviously we're gonna have some guys. Oh, you had him tenth, but I had him sixth or whatever. Yeah. So, um, Tim, who's your number ten? BB Landers. Oh, <laughs> I should have known. God, <laughs> he is not on my list. <laughs> you think? B.B. Landers, is he a, is this his third year or fourth year in the program? His fourth year in the program, third year playing. Okay, so he's a redshirt junior who's never been a starter. Why is B.B. Landers in your top ten? Because I feel like every time he's out there on the field, he makes something happen. He's a guy who is disruptive in the interior. He's a matchup problem for bigger offensive lines, particularly Wisconsin, because he's a smaller guy who knows how to get leverage. And he's, he's a hard guy to block. For a guy his size, he moves extremely well, and he's going to... Now with Tracy Sprinkle graduated, he's going to get full time opportunity. I'm expecting BB to just create massive chaos. So if you're if you're ten massive chaos, well, <laughs> he's five foot ten and like for his size. <laughs> okay, but if he mice create massive chaos for their size too, like. <laughs> If a bowling ball previously backup defensive tackle is your tenth best player, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably not a great thing. Well, I, I, I would have him like in my top fifteen, probably. Well, I'm because si- I do I do agree with some of what you're saying, but massive chaos I think is a, well, is a step. Okay, too maybe far. not massive chaos. I'm I'm just saying un, he's an underrated guy who I think is going to shine this season. I they, also think he benefits from being a situational guy and is not an every down defensive. Yeah, player. that's always a big thing in every sport. Yeah, yeah. It's like the whole thing is. This guy hit 350 and 200 at bats, and then we made him a full time player and hit 212. Yeah. So um, I like him. I'm not trying to shortchange a guy. But. Yeah. No, that's that's high praise. I think next time you see BB Landers, you should tell him you're in my top ten. Yeah. Well, I still think he got shortchanged for the Piesman this season, and I do uh, agree with that. Yeah. And that'll. I mean, that'll that will drive him. That yeah. will absolutely be a motivator for well, him. This plus, it gives us more BB press conferences this season. Yeah, I think that was a press conference vote by you. Yeah. <laughs> Just because you want him to be a top ten player, so we can talk to him every week. We're going to talk to him every week anyway. He won't. He will refuse to be stopped from meeting the media. <laughs> Jerry, you need me? Uh, no, BB, we've gotten you six weeks in a row. You sure? I'm right here. <laughs> All right, he's not. On, is he on your list? He's not. On he's my not list. on my list. Oh. Who's your number ten? Paris Campbell. Paris Campbell is on my list, higher than 10th. Same with me. Why is he only 10 for you? Because uh, I don't think he's our best receiver. I have a receiver higher than him. Um, and maybe he could have been higher than 10. I actually like even toyed with the idea of not having him on the list at all, but then I thought, well, he's probably their third. He's their second and maybe arguably most explosive offensive playmaker. I think it's either him or Dobbins. Um 
but he's going to be an important part of the offense. And like we talked about, if you if when used the right way, I think he's very dangerous. Yeah. So maybe I don't. Know, you guys have him higher than ten, but I thought ten felt right to me. I, I feel like uh, maybe an underrated part of last year was that he did have concussion issues. He missed the Iowa game. He stopped returning kicks. Um, I think that factor. And then again, just the like figuring out what to do with him. I think there were things that made him have not as good of a year last year as you might have expected that were out of his control. That would be easy fixes that would potentially open him up to a much better year this year. Yeah. So I think that's on the table, which is why I have him a little bit higher. My 10th is Michael Jordan. Do you guys have him on not your list? Not on my list. I do not. thought about it, but not on my list. So he's an first-team All-Big Ten player. Yeah. And I know when we talked about the offensive line, someone had uh, tweeted stats to us about, like, are we sure that he was great in every situation or whatever? Listen, I'm not going to be pretend to be an expert on every single individual offensive lineman. This guy earned a starting job as a true freshman. He's going to be starting for the third straight year this year. He made first-team All-Big Ten. So he's a he's going to be his third year starting, and he's already made all big ten. Like so, he's in my top ten. I I don't. I'm just drooling. <laughs> God, I just drooled down my arm. I I can't. I'm not gonna. I can't sit here and say, oh well, against this team he did that and he dominated. I don't know. But people, coaches voted for him, right? Yeah. So I think, and and I'm contradicting myself. I have another offensive lineman ranked higher than him. So do I. But I think if you said right now, who is Ohio State's best offensive lineman with Billy Price and Jamarco Jones gone, I think your safest pick might be Michael Jordan. Because you could yeah. point to what I just said. Yeah, I think you're right. So I think maybe there's other guys who might end up being having a better year because of opportunity and and ceiling. Um but this guy has a chance. I mean, in the end, this guy might break Billy Price's record and stuff for most starts and all this. I mean, like this guy, he's he's not a senior yet, but if he sticks around, he's gonna have like an amazing career. Like if you're like a four year starter, three time all first team All Big Ten, and you started sixty games or whatever, mm-hmm. like you're like an all timer at Ohio State. So that's yep. Michael Jordan. Um, Tim, who's your ninth? A guy we just talked about a few minutes ago, Baron Browning. He's my ninth as well. Good, great minds think alike here. Did he make your list? Did you? For- I thought he did, but then I for- I, it looks like he did not. <laughs> so you, but you generally agree with the idea of Baron Browning being in the top ten, though, even though he didn't make yeah, your list. I think I made a mistake on my own. List. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why is he ninth for you, Tim? Well, full disclosure, I think like nine to fifteen are like in such a close range. I could have put picked like any two guys. Like I'll say right now, I don't have an offensive lineman in my top ten. Wrong. <laughs> I toyed with that, but I feel like Browning, for the reasons we've talked about, the ability to play outside and inside, his athleticism, what he was able to do on special teams, he's a guy that will force his way onto the field just where, regardless of position because of the kind of athlete he is. You know, a year of learning the system is always going to benefit a young player. I think he can be a guy that could just really run this linebacking core right away this season. You've got to project a little bit, you know, it's like, James Laurinaitis played a little bit as a freshman, and his sophomore year, he was like the best linebacker in the country. Yeah. You know, like like guys do that at a, at a place like Ohio State, at a place like Alabama, at the best of the best. Guys do stuff like this all the time. So 
you've got to hedge on Baron Browning a little bit, but it's like, could Baron Browning be an All-American this year? It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. he could be. And I don't know that – I wouldn't say that about – if, if that would be another list. Give me the number of guys that you think are could be All-Americans this year, first or second team All-American. And it's like your list can be as long or as short as you want it to be. And we'd probably all come with uh, come up with between like four and eight guys. Yeah. But I think Baron Browning would be on everybody's list. He'd be on my mm-hmm. list. So so I Even think that's a reasonable thing. So my I, the reason I have him ninth is the same reason Tim has him ninth. And you should have had him ninth, except you may, you messed up your own list. Looking at my list, I think I would have the guy that I have nine at ten move Campbell out of the top ten and put Baron Browning at nine. <laughs> okay. I just, I just forgot to put him on my oh, list. Who's your nine right now? Jordan Fuller. Jordan Fuller is on my list as well. Is he on your list? He's way higher than nine for me. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Like I, he has not been a totally dynamic player. I think on the back end of the defense, but I think that'll okay. change this year. Um, and I thought I felt like he showed a lot toward the end of last season, like when he was sort of their de facto nickel guy. Like they put him in the slot to cover, and I thought he did a really good job. Um, and at the moment, he is the player I feel I have a I have a secondary player higher than him. And you can guess who that is based on potential, but at the moment, I think he is the surest thing in the back end of Ohio State's defense. Yeah. Okay. So Tim has him much higher. I'm a, I'm a little bit higher. Um, eighth. My eighth is Isaiah Prince. I have him higher. Um, moving to left tackle, which we you've confirmed with another player, is definitely happening. Mm-hmm. Um, hasn't done as much as a guy like Michael Jordan so far, but just has still a boatload of potential that he hasn't unlocked all the way yet. Um, but he's a senior. Like this yeah. is it. Like he's he's kind of he's a this will be his third year as a starter, and he's been good, but there's still a chance he could be really good. So they need him to be really good at left tackle. I think there's absolutely the chance for him to be really good at left tackle. I think um his sophomore year was obviously a struggle basically in every way for him. Last year he got it together much more, but like he didn't want to talk to us, which to me is an indication. He just turned down interview requests respectfully and nicely, but he didn't want to talk about it, which means like he's still battling it. So like if he's at the point where I have two years under my belt, like I'm a senior left tackle on this line now, I've got it. If he can just like bathe in confidence a little bit, I think he act absolutely has another step to take. So he's not yeah. in your top 10, Tim, is that right? I would put him at 11. I, I wrestle with him and BB for that final spot. And and he's higher on your list. Yeah, should okay. I say where he is or wait till we get to this Wait till you get to yours. Who's okay. your 8, Bill? O- Okuda. Okay. Who I think um, certainly I think has the most potential of anyone on the back end of the defense. And I think now that we've seen some turnover in the coaching in the secondary, I wonder how much that sort of wipes the slate clean. And it's not to say that I don't think Damon Arnett and Kendall Sheffield will play. I just think that Okuda is better than them and will play ahead of them. So I think he's your number one corner next year. And by the end of the year, I would not be surprised if he's like a top five player. Is Okuda in your top ten? No. Okuda is also not in my top ten, but he would be my 11. I basically think Okuda and Baron Browning are the, the same guy in the same position, but Okuda played a little more. But the reason that I don't have Okuda there and I do have Browning is I feel like in my own head at the moment I've rationalized Browning's spot ahead of Borland more than I've rationalized exactly what they're going to do at corner when you lost Enzo Ward and clearly Okuda is one of the top three, 
But Sheffield and Arnett are both back. Is Tabor Johnson going to rotate three guys in two spots? Will Okuda be first among equals? Will it be that they all rotate kind of equally, but maybe he's the third guy in that rotation still? I don't exactly know how it's going to be. I would, I would, I did not consider putting Kendall Sheffield or Damon Arnett on my list. No, they're not. So I would definitely say Jeffrey Okuda to me is the first corner, and he's done more than Browning. But I'm just a little uncertain of how they're all going to do it, and so I hedged and didn't put him on. But he probably should be on. Did you think about putting him on, Tim? I, not really. I thought about it again. He falls in that 9-15 to 15 group for me. Okay. Strong group, 9-15. to 15. It is. Who's your 8, Tim? Uh, it might be a little lower than you guys. Draymond Jones. I have him higher. I have him higher. Why did you only put him 8? I feel like last season he kind of underperformed some expectations. I think a lot of us expected he'd be first-rounder. He didn't quite live up to those expectations. Injury played a role in it. He was good, but he wasn't as disruptive as I thought he could have been. Given the defensive line situation next season with Nick Bosa, Chase Young, I think Draymond and BB will be a very good defensive tackle duo. I think they'll complement each other very well, and I like Draymond's ability to pass rush on the interior. I think he's due for a, a bounce back. You have a much smaller gap between Draymond and BB among the tackles, I think, than Bill and I do. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. I don't mind. Yeah. I probably have about 10 spots between them. Yeah, me too. Um, okay. Tim, who's your seven? Um, I went finally went offense. I went Austin Mack number seven. I also have Austin Mack number seven. I do not have Austin Mack in my top ten, and I'm okay with that. I think he's our best receiver. Like as much as like Campbell is like, a very explosive guy, I think Mack's our best receiver, and I do think there is something to the Dwayne Haskins Austin Mack connection. Their roommates, their friends. Um, I think I'll throw the ball to him a lot. Is is Mac your highest ranked receiver, Tim? No, no. Okay, but why did you why did you like Mac? He's in that not spot? because I th- I think of the six, he's oh, the best geez. pure receiver of, of the six guys. He's the best pure receiver. I've said before in the convo, I thought he was Ohio State's best offensive player. He has the ability to make the catches no one else really does. I mean, we've mentioned the butt catch against Oklahoma, that big third down he had against Michigan. The butt catch. Forgot about that. How can you forget about that? That was probably one of the, that was one of the catches of the season, right there. I, re- I don't remember the losses. <laughs> well, if you don't remember your losses, how do you get better? Stay, well, stay great. Stay great, stay humble. No, stay hungry, stay humble. Anyways, I, I, you o- both have Campbell higher than I had Campbell, right? Yes. yes. Okay. I'm okay. I'm okay with Austin Mack not being there yet because um, in, I, I, I didn't really think about putting him in my top ten. Other than I thought Paris is the most explosive guy and deserved to be in the top ten. And then I of the outside receivers, I think Austin Mack is the best and will be the best, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I I didn't have enough to me to say. Well, I'm definitely going to put Austin Mack in while I leave out Johnny Dixon and Terry McLaurin and Ben Victor and everybody else. So um, I thought and KJ Hill. I'm not so sure I wouldn't have KJ Hill ahead of Austin Mack again. I think Austin Mack will be good. But I'm I am I am not I mean Austin Mack so Brown like guys like Browning and Okuda just haven't really had the chance to be great yet right right Austin Mack has like Austin Mack could have been unbelievably great last year like Austin Mack had the chance last year I know JT is not the world's greatest thrower but Austin Mack maybe could have been like well I've got it well Austin Mack 
I mean, we rotate, but Austin Mack, we know we have to get Austin Mack the ball. We know we have to keep Austin Mack on the field. That's out there. That's out there for any one of these outside receivers at any point to become the guy that has to be on the field more. Mm-hmm. And nobody's done it. And that's fine. And we've had this discussion many times before. But Jeffrey Okuda and Baron Browning haven't really had that chance yet. Austin Mack has. And maybe maybe he'll take more of a step this year. I believe he'll take more of a step just like you guys do. But, you know, I didn't put him in the top ten because he didn't do it last year. He was good. Yeah. But he wasn't a guy that I thought had to be in the top ten. All right. What number was that? That was seven. seven. World six. And you had seven? You both had max seven. Had yeah, seven. who's your seven? I had fuller seven. Okay. I had fuller seven. Who I am a little like... I think he's good. I don't know if he'll be great. Like, which is fine. But I don't yeah. know. Like, Damon Webb ended up having a really good year. Like, like Jordan Fuller, I think about... Like, but is Jordan Fuller going to get anywhere near... Not that anybody can be Malik Hooker, but right. it's like... Game-changing? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. That's don't know. a fair question. Like, I'm... Again, like, he's sort of like... He was good. He got a shot. He took it. He won the job. He beat out a senior. Got on the field. Made some plays. But, yeah. I mean, he's good. But I... I Seven's the absolute high. Now, and where'd you guys have him? Item nine. I have not gotten to him okay. yet. Okay. So I would... I was... I'm probably even maybe a little high in my mind on him at seven. Yeah. I maybe should have had him lower. All right. So we're at six. Mm-hmm. So who do you have six, Bill? Isaiah Prince. Okay. And that, like, I... I went back and forth on, like, weighing potential and, like, production over your career and importance. And I think I leaned a little more toward importance with this because he's a starting left tackle. Okay. But I also see a lot of potential in that guy. Like, I I think he was much, much better. And it, like, wasn't talked about enough last year how much better he was. Okay. Um, And I think there's even more for him to... to, Another place for him to go in 2018. My six is Paris. I think he's the second most explosive guy in the offense. And sort of what I said before. Who's your six, Tim? I also said Paris six. Okay. And I thought, you know, like, I feel like in the end my top five was pretty easy. But I thought, I thought, I felt very good about Paris at six. Because I feel like Paris, sort of what we said before. You feel, like, you feel like, Tim, you're waiting, like, you think Paris is in for something bigger than we saw last year? Yeah, if if they put him back on kick return, I think that validates him being a little higher on the list. He's the one guy in this team, other than J.K. Dobbins, who anytime you touch the football, you think he's got a chance to go all the way to the end zone. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, I think, and I think there's a chance we see that quite a bit more. All right, so there's a position. We're now in our top five, right? Yep. And there's a position that we haven't talked about yet that I'm assuming is in the top five unless you guys didn't put it in at all. And I'll be very curious to see. I have the position in there, and I have the position high. Okay. I have the position in there as well. My number five is Dwayne Haskins. I have him higher. Okay. I have him at five, too. For some reason, I was actually thinking I was crazy for having a five, because in a lot of ways, it's pure projection. I don't think it's pure projection. I think the Michigan game makes it not pure projection. And again, I, I think we said before, I thought he had the ideal backup, young backup quarterback year. We saw him a lot. And Urban talked about it. We had whatever the game was. Where he fumbled. Illinois in the rain. And then they put him back in and he made some throws. Like, he got picked, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he he wasn't perfect, but he had chances to bounce back. He made a mistake, had a bad week, came back and had a good week. Uh, I thought... I thought you could go higher, but 
there's no way I would have put him higher because my top four, I think there's a lot, there's an obvious top four to me. And then Dwayne Haskins was the obvious number five to me. So, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. So, I, I, went, I went way high. You went way high. So now, is Tate in your top five? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Backup quarterback, slot receiver, gunslinger. Tate, I have Dwayne Haskins one and Tate Martell two. Yeah. Um, okay. So you have Dwayne Haskins higher than that. So Tim and I both have Dwayne Haskins five. Who's your five? Draymond. Okay. Who I probably should be maybe a spot higher, but again, I, I went big on Haskins. So okay. that's the reason he's five. Okay. But I like I think he'll he'll round back in the form and I think we'll be put in better positions this year. Okay. Alright, so we have two Haskins at five and one Draymond at five. Number four, Tim, who's your four? Number four, Jordan Fuller. Okay. That's way too high. You think so? Yeah. I I disagree. I mean, up, up until before. the end of the okay. season, Fuller was among the team leader in tackles. He had more solo stops than anybody, and I keep thinking I he was a guy stats, who man. was in the right place at the right time to make things happen. I mean, he that tackle against Saquon Barkley against Penn State in that third quarter, it yeah. didn't completely fit the, flip the momentum of the game, but I don't think you can understate how important that was. Great play. Yeah. It, Put him number four for one play? Well, no, because, I mean... He's going to be the guy in the secondary. I think there's a lot to him. You mentioned the ability for him to play slot corner if need be. That kind of versatility, along with his ability to make tackles. He had that huge pick. Granted, it was practically an arm punt against Michigan. Somebody had to catch that ball. True. And Jordan Fuller was the guy who caught that football. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, what you're talking about is Jordan Fuller playmaker. So if you have a belief that this guy is going to be a consistent, every game kind of playmaker for this defense, we've seen what a safety as one of your five best players looks like on this team. Again, nobody ever again is going to be Malik Hooker. But you see what a guy like that can do. Malik Hooker changed Ohio State. So if you think Jordan Fuller can even approach that, then I think you can make this argument. And you seem to be talking about the plays you're bringing up are game-changing type of things, and then yet also, you're talking about his tackle numbers, making the consistent every-down kind of thing you got to do, and then flashing at times. Yeah, he doesn't need to be Millie Cooker good. If he can be almost as good as Von Bell, that'd be fantastic. That'd be a huge thing for this Ohio State defense, because the secondary's young, and Fuller one from a guy who was co-started to, I'd say, the second most important playmaker in that back seven of the defense, along with Denzel Ward, by the end of the season. Last year. So where'd you have Fuller again? Nine. I had him seven. Ten on my revised list that includes Byron Brown. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I I think that's a little high for Fuller, but I think you make a strong case for it. So I'll, I'll, I, yeah. I, I will buy that. All right. What's your four? Dobbins. Okay. What? what? I, told, I told you I had Haskins high, and we haven't talked defensive ends yet. Who yeah. Are, like, like... No, that's where he's got to be. My four is Draymond. My four is Draymond. So... Um, Dobbins is. I think Dobbins can have. Like, I think his stats will be a little worse because he rushed for like fourteen hundred yards last year. Yeah. Um, I think his stats will be a little worse, but he will have like a a, a better season in terms of impact on the offense. Like Mike Weber's going to take the ball out of his hands a little bit. I think. I think it's going to be. We thought, we had the conversation before. I think it's going to be much more of a closer to a split than it was last year. Still not fifty fifty, but closer. Yeah, and, so that would affect his yeah. his contribution and how you would rank him in something like this if you believe that. I don't believe that. I know. So, okay. 
So let's get to the top three. Again, your four was Fuller, your four was Dobbins, my four was Draymond. My three, I think we're all going to have the same number one. My three is Chase Young. My three is Chase Young. So is mine. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He played as a true freshman. He forced his way into the defensive end rotation when they already had four very good defensive ends because he's a monster. And he's going to start, and he's going to be great. And um, my family went with me to the Ohio State-Iowa basketball game the other day when the Ohio State football players joined the dance team at a break and did a little dance. And I pointed down and I said, do you see that guy who's number two down there? Not the number two that's J.K. Dobbins, but the other number two. He might be the first pick in the draft in two years. Yeah. So that's Chase Young. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. I think he could have been two, I think. I don't have him two, but I think there was an argument for him to be two. Yeah, yeah. okay. Who, I think, Tim, who's your two? I know who your two is. J.K. Dobbins. That's also my two, and your two is Haskins. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. We think, you, do, what, do you think, Bill made the argument that he thinks Dobbins is overall... Numbers might be down a little bit because of Mike Weber. He'll still have a huge contribution to the offense. What, to what degree do you think Mike Weber may cut into J.K. Dobbins' numbers? I think he'll cut in maybe a tiny bit because Weber will be, as long as he's healthier from day one, Dobbins won't be the guy. He won't get the 29 carries he did against Indiana. But I feel like it could be, you know, 65-35% uh, in favor of Dobbins. Both guys will be involved in the pass game. Weber showed more as a receiver last year than I thought he could, especially, you know, catching some wheel routes. He showed some good speed. But I'm curious the kind of leap J.K. Dobbins will take as a sophomore. We've seen in recent years guys like Dalvin Cook, Saquon Barkley, Leonard Fournette had great freshman seasons and just explode in their sophomore season. And I think even with Mike Weber, even with a new quarterback in Dwayne Haskins who's got – better potential as a thrower, I think J.K. Dobbins can do that. There were a lot of games last year. I know J.K. had 29 carries the first game. There were a lot of games where he had like 14 carries, 16 carries, Mm -hmm. 13 carries, right? I cannot imagine that's the case this year. I cannot imagine him with fewer than 20 touches in any game unless it's a blowout and he doesn't play in the second half. If it's a normal game, he absolutely has to touch the ball 20 times. Now, it might be 17 rushes and four receptions or whatever, yep. which is fine. But we hit a big run in the middle of the year where it was like, oh, you know, J.K.'s get. I just refuse to believe that they're going to live in that world. And so, again, we can, and we'll debate this a million times before the season starts. There are carries out there. J.T. Barrett's carries are out there for the whole offense. That's more receptions for the receivers, that's more work for the H-backs, and that's more work for both tailbacks. So so there can be a world where Mike Weber and J.K. Dobbins can both see their production increase. But if they end up throwing it a lot more, I mean, I just, I absolutely cannot imagine a lot of games where we get to the end of the game and we look at the stats and it says J.K. Dobbins 15 carries, Mike Weber 10 carries. That's a mistake. And I don't think that they're going to make that mistake. I think it's going to say J.K. Dobbins 22 carries, Mike Weber 6 carries. I think I, it can be like 20 and like 13. You know what might actually play into that? 
less read option because how many times last year were they crashing on J.K. Dobbins when J.T. Barrett run the read option and Barrett kept, and then they did the opposite with Weber. With Haskins, there's going to be probably a lot less read options, going to be more design handoffs where Dobbins will get the football. So I think that ha- that has to impact his carries a little bit. And, and it will. It's just a matter of but how many. So when they don't run the read option, how many of the read option plays turn into just throws? Mm-hmm. Will they throw it a couple more times, and how many turn into more straight tailback handoffs? I don't know. I mean, I think we'll do a whole podcast on that. We'll do a whole fake numbers percentage thing. J.K. Barrett averaged whatever it was last year. J.T. Barrett. What did I say? J.K. Barrett. Oh, God. I've already forgotten his name. Is that name. like Dauber and Webbins? <laughs> yeah, Dauber and Webbins. J.T. Barrett, whatever he averaged last year, 17 carries. I don't know what it was. Probably, right? 15, yeah. 17. We'll figure out the number when we need to. We'll do a whole podcast. We'll do a whole story on dividing up J.T. Barrett's carries. Where do they go? How many become J.K. Dobbins carries? How many become Mike Weber carries? How many become touches? For Paris Campbell and KJ Hill at H back, how many become touches for the receivers? Um, I think it's it's a fascinating thing to look at. But you also you can't start parceling stuff out and say, well, okay, you have seventeen JT Barrett carries to work with, and then you start parceling stuff out, and all of a sudden you've parceled out thirty extra touches. Yeah, you know, like you, you got to figure out. But maybe you know, I, I think maybe you're right. Maybe it is more like. 20 and 10 or 20 and 12, and J.K. still gets his, but Weber's still a big part of it. But I think 30-ish rush attempts is, is where they'll be. Which is probably where they were last year. Yeah. Even above that. I'm sure they were Some above games, that. yeah, for sure. So, Some games they were in the 50s. Yeah. Okay. So we all had Chase Young at three. Tim and I had Dobbins at two. You had Haskins at two. Which means number one for everybody is Nick Bosa. I have Tim Martell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot Nick Bosa. Let me do the list again. <clears throat> yeah, Bosa. Any yep. hesitation? Nope. Zero. My top four I had no hesitation about. So, again, like Bosa as the star of the defense, Dobbins as the star of the offense, Chase Young as the, my God, he's going he's gonna to be a huge star who hasn't, just hasn't shown it yet. And then Draymond Jones as a guy who everyone projects as a first-round draft pick who you didn't think would be back. So I thought those those four were very easy for me. I don't even know what we have to say about Bosa. But we he think this guy could be as good as any defensive player in college football this year, right? Yeah. No, I think as much as we talk about Chase Young as potential number one overall pick, I think Nick Bosa certainly has that potential as well. And, and or, he, or first overall non-quarterback, whatever. And he's talked a lot about that he's going to be on the field more. He doesn't really think he's going to rotate much. He's going to be on every third down for sure, outside, not inside. So he's going to have – there's no point in talking sack numbers because I think we've learned, you know, sack numbers don't tell the story. You impact mm-hmm. the game in a lot of ways. If you get triple teamed and somebody else gets a sack, I mean, that's – you did your job. So um, I'll be very – it's going to be fascinating to watch – Offenses and offensive lines and offensive coordinators try to figure out what they're going to do with blocking Nick Bosa and blocking Chase Young. But I'm sure we'll do something before the season where we say, who's going to lead the team in sacks? And I think I might say Chase Young. Yeah, I think I might say Chase Young or even like Draymond. Because, because who are you going to double team? team. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think that's a, an interesting world. Let me. I want to run through this real quick just to pull this all together for everybody. Bosa, we all had one. Dobbins, I had two, Tim had two, you had three. Four. You had four. Two, two, and four for Dobbins. 
Chase Young, everybody had three. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Draymond, I had four. Where'd you have him, Bill? Five. Where'd you have him, Tim? Eight. Four, five, and eight for Draymond. Haskins, you, Bill, you had him two. Two. I had him five. Where'd you have him? Five. Two, five, and five for Dwayne Haskins. Paris Campbell, I had six. I had ten. And I had six. Six, six, and ten for Paris Campbell. Jordan Fuller was four for you, Tim? Yep. Four, I had him seven, and you had him nine, Bill? Mm Mm-hmm. Four, seven, and nine for Jordan Fuller. Isaiah Prince, I had him eight. Where'd you have him, Bill? Six. Where'd you have him, Tim? I did not. If I had to rank him, I'd put him 11. Six, eight, and 11 for Isaiah Prince. Baron Browning, Tim and I both had nine. I had him off my list due to an oversight. But and your revised list would be? Probably have him at nine and put Fuller at 10 and move Campbell off. Okay, so nine, nine, and nine for Baron Browning. And then I had Michael Jordan. You guys did not have Michael Jordan? Correct. And then who did you have on? Okuda at eight. Okuda at eight, and you had? Landers at 10. Landers at 10. Okay. I would have had Okuda at 11. Uh, he was the guy that, to me, was the toughest guy to leave off. Yeah. Um, no one, they want to think about putting Mike Weber in the top 10? No. No. Yeah. Okay. So, overall, that's, like, I, I think you were saying, like, that's a really good top three or four or five. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you know, it's like. A couple game-changing defensive ends, a running back who, as a freshman, ran for 1,400 yards and you think might be a Heisman candidate. Um, you know, Jordan Fuller's a playmaker. Draymond Jones is a playmaker, whoever you have in there. Dwayne Haskins is has flashed a little bit in his opportunities. People think you're going to have a good quarterback. But then, like, the next five, like you said, I mean, we were saying, like, between, like, what, 8 and 15 or 9? It's almost like between, like, 6 and 15. There's a lot of, like, he's good... He's yep. been good. He might be great. I don't know if he'll, like, you know, that, that it's like, because that's, every every really good team has a couple really good players. The backbone of your national championship contender is that next group. Is your right. next group, is your, your sixth through 15th best players. Are they good? Are they really good? Are they, eh, they have some good games, some bad games? Like, I think that's where it's going to be determined how good this team is. And I think there's some question marks in there. There's a lot of guys who, who frankly, just haven't played all that much or, or at all. Like, I don't know. Outside of the receivers, everyone's back at receiver. There's a lot of new. Or, and at the very least, if there's not a lot of new, there's a lot of young guys who were second, third string who are now first, second string. So just a lot of unknown, I think. Yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't be, like, terribly worried about it at the moment. But I think it's a, a, it's a point worth making at this time that there is a lot of unknown with the roster. Yeah, it's the nature of how it works in college football. And again, when we look back at this and think, oh my God, we didn't have Jeffrey Okuda in the top ten. Tim and I didn't. You had him, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, oh, Jeffrey Okuda, what'd he do? He's a first-team All-American. He led the nation in interceptions. It's like, yeah! So that's out there. But again, I don't know. It's, it, it, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting way to look at the team. It's an interesting way to look at the yeah. team. Yeah. I look forward to doing the top 50 in, in the summer. Yeah, that's always good. Um, all right. Strap in, <laughs> Buckeye Talk listeners. Get ready for a good 30 to 35 minutes of robot talk. This is Professor David Woods from Ohio State. You will see at the end of this podcast, he talks about how Ohio State, in his opinion, and it sounds like he backs it up, is has actually been a leader in sort of um, studying automation 
in advancing automation and helping your life get a little easier through automation. He said that's been the case since the end of World War II, that Ohio State's done a lot of work with that. He has some very interesting classes that he teaches. If you want to take a class in robots, at the end of our conversation, Dr. Uh, Professor Woods explains uh, what classes he teaches if you want to learn more about this. I thought this was interesting. Bottom line is, are robot dogs going to kill us? That's where this conversation started. It branches off from there. Uh, Professor Woods had a lot to say. And so we like every now and then, it's the off-season, you know, what are we going to do? Give you a top 80 players right now? So we gave you a top 10 players, and then we did 30 minutes of robot talk. Yeah. Here comes 30 minutes of robot talk, and then when we get back from robot talk, we will take your questions here on the Buckeye Talk Podcast. All right, we are honored to have an actual expert on the podcast this week on Buckeye Talk. We have Professor David Woods from Ohio State who has been studying uh, autonomy, autonomous systems, robots for almost 40 years. He's been involved in the last decade in all the national discussions about autonomous systems. He knows what everybody's thinking about this, what the future holds um, for our society as it relates to humans interacting with robots and autonomous systems. This guy is an actual expert, and I am freaked out, and he has promised to make me a little less freaked out and then also freak me out again. So, Professor Woods, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I mean, the first thing is all this hype about robots is, as I always remind people, it's anybody can build a robot. Nine-year-olds build a robot. In fact, for people as a sports commentator, you know, uh, parents are concerned about getting their kid on the right sports team to develop. Are you going to be on the soccer travel team? Well, guess what? You know, if you aren't, if you don't get your kid in the right Lego robot camp by nine years old, that your child is going to miss out on being a developer of robotic capabilities. I mean, kids can do it. At Ohio State, if we want to encourage people to go into science and math-related fields, what do we do? We take high school art students, and we say, let's build a robot. Anybody can build a robot. You know, it's easy to create some capability. The problem is, how do you make it work on a regular basis in real situations where there's real limits, real difficulties, real variability? And so the action isn't demonstrating some robot. The issue is, can you make it work? And making it work turns out to be really hard. Okay. And the big example of this has been Fukushima. So I, I know you mentioned and you've seen the robot that can open a door. Right. I mean, really? 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 Well, we can any we have children who can walk up and open a door. In fact, we make our doors childproof because kids learn to open doors to get places they shouldn't get. And we finally got a robot to do it. I mean, you have to understand that some of these things that are hyped are um, you know, not as uh, not as big a breakthrough as they seem. The Fukushima We had the nuclear accident after the tsunami in Japan. Japan spends more money than anybody on developing robots. Guess what? Weren't the robots any use? No. They weren't helpful in going through a deconstructed terrain. 
right? There's damage. There's damaged uh. doors. How do I open a damaged door? They couldn't open the doors. You couldn't figure out what, what they were looking at. They had to send a robot, right, to watch the other robot so the people operating the robot could figure out what was going on in order to explore the damaged reactor and figure out what was going on. So in the end, the robots weren't nearly as helpful as they should have been. They weren't designed for the right kind of mission, the difficulties and complexities that went on. So, so the first thing is it's easy to demonstrate something robotic, making it work for real over time, especially when budgets get tight, that's a lot harder. Okay. So, so you're telling me the video this week of the robot dogs opening a door, that, that, should actually, that should not worry me because all that robot dog is doing is something that a two-year-old can do. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice demonstration of more capability. And, and another thing we like to say when we teach this stuff is, look, if you've got a mission, like you want to use robots in disaster response, okay, that's great. You know, if you have a, this mission, I'm going to improve disaster response, you're probably going to find some robotic or operated, some small drones will be valuable, right? I want to fly a small drone up and inspect a bu damaged building. Yeah. It's safe for the first responders to go in. That's a great capability. But you won't design it right unless you start with the mission. So if you start with the mission, you'll design a system that has some robotic or autonomous capabilities. But if you start with, let's just let's just build more autonomous capabilities, what do we find over and over again? It doesn't actually support the mission, like the Fukushima example. Okay. Or like, right? So it's great. It can open a door. Turns out doing that's very complicated. Um, you know, we have examples of... Uh, Robots trying to get through. So someone's operating a robot on a disaster site. This is a disaster city in Texas, Texas A&M. And the person operating the robot with the camera on the robot can't tell if the robot can make it through a damaged doorway. Right? The building is damaged. Can the robot get through? Can it judge passability? If you were standing there, you can immediately judge, can you get through a space? Right. Even if it's a non-normal space. But the person looking through the camera on the robot has a terrible time deciding because Disaster City is a safe disaster zone, right? It's deconstructed buildings, but you can go stand on them. So you can do, so first responders can practice rescues. Right. The senior developer of the robot was on the building with me, and he finally shouts down to the operator and says, it's okay, the robot can make it through, because he could see yeah. what the person looking through the camera couldn't see. Now, what do these examples all tell us? What these examples all tell us is robots are valuable to people. So okay. when you worry about robots doing something to you, that's not going to be the issue. What's going to be the issue is they'll do something for you. Right. Right. In the end, robots do something for someone. Someone's making a big investment to get an advantage, to start a new kind of business. Right. Amazon wants to save money on delivering five-pound packages within 10 miles of their distribution centers. So they're seeing an efficiency and a productivity advantage. 
So it's people. So every story we see of new robots, or new autonomous systems are really stories of people seeking advantage. Now, the problem for you, there's two problems for you. One is what they see as an advantage may not be an advantage to you. Right. Right. It's about conflict between different human purposes, different human groups or organizations. So what's the example of this right now? It's all over the political news, bots on social media and the Internet. So the Internet is full of little bots, they're called, and they travel around the Internet. It's part of the way we know we get search results quickly. They are crawling the Internet, crawling the link, so to speak. Well, it was just an invisible part of the technology of having the web. And then all of a sudden, people started using bots for other purposes. First, it was ways to have fake users liking you, right. face users on your Facebook account, right? Um, you know, there are millions of fake users following celebrities and politicians, pretending, oh, look, I have so many followers. Well, many of those are fake. They're robots on the Internet. And people were kind of, oh, it doesn't really matter. And then we have bots on the Internet actually being directed to manipulate elections and perceptions and political rivalries. So it starts to be a part of information war. Right. Nobody expected that. Uh, it was a whole new thing that broke. And so, so, so first... The worry, what you worry about is that, that example is not about the bots. It's about the human rivalries, the humans working at different purposes. So you should worry about how robots extend the capabilities for people to do things you don't like. Right. Right. Steal your identity. Yeah. <laughs> These kinds of things. But it's about people, right, and how the robots extend the ability of people to do things but also to do things that you might not find as, um, as important for your goals, right? I mean, in some sense, they create new ways that uh, we talk about them as parasites, right? Think of it like parasites in the world. Right. All this connectivity that the technology gives you creates uh, opportunity for parasites. So what you should worry about is your car. <laughs> when it can drive itself part of the time, the problem is... Somebody can hijack it. Right. Right. Somebody can influence it from a distance. Now, they can do it accidentally when they download software. So Tesla automatically updates software on the car while you're using it. You can have a problem with that, inadvertent problem with that, or you can have somebody trying to deliberately do something. So what we always say, so, so one thing, it's the human rivalries, the human cross-purposes you worry about. Now, the other thing you worry about is, wait a minute, these systems aren't as reliable as everybody makes out. Right. Right? And that's what you need to worry about. And that's what people should talk to their uh, government and regulators and things about, is the... Um, the effort to make these reliable. And the big problem, there's lots of them, but the big one is creeping complexity. They just keep adding more more software, more sensors, more interconnections, and it gets harder and harder. Yes, it has more capability, 
but it gets harder and harder to figure out what it's doing, why it's doing it, what it's going to do next. In fact, you know what? When we were studying the first wave of automation on airplanes back in the 90s, right, back around 1990, what, what were the three most common things a pilot said on the automated cockpit of 1990. It was, what's it doing? Why is it doing that? I wonder what it's going to do next. And so, right, the issue is we're designing the automation in a way that's hard for people to understand what it's doing, to diagnose it, to respond quickly and appropriately. Uh, Oh, here, uh, I'll tell you a story. Okay. How about this one to scare you? Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this isn't too bad. It won't kill anybody. It'll just lose your savings. Okay. Okay. Um, so we had a case in a few years ago. It was called a company called Knight Capital. So they do financial trading. So financial trading has become computerized. Again, people seeking advantage spent tens of millions of dollars to speed up and expand the number of transactions they could do every second because they could make money. And so every change in the financial world ends up being a change in the software. So Knight Capital runs computerized trading. And there's a change in the competitive world. There's a change in regulation. There's a change in what other companies are doing. They have some new capabilities, so they roll this out to improve their trading and make more money for themselves and their clients. Well, this day, when they rolled out the new software, it didn't do what they thought. And then they tried to do, because they have procedures for dealing with problems, so they tried to follow the procedures called rollback. Let's go back to the old software. Well, that didn't work. They had more problems, and it didn't make any sense. Meanwhile, it's runaway automation. It's trading and trading and trading. Every second, it's making lots more trades. It takes people minutes to figure out what's going on. And what do they figure out? They don't have no idea what's going on. Really? So now they have to go to the upper management. No, this really happened. So they have to decide to go to upper management and say, we don't know. I mean, think of the situation that people had to do. The runaway automation leads them to have to go to the top management of a major financial company. And these are people who are worth a lot of money and go, we don't know what's going on and we have to stop trading. And that took gut. It took them a long time to get the nerves to do that. Yeah, yeah. Right? A long time. Because remember, every second trades, trades, trades. So what happens is by the time they get upper management to prove turning off trading, they've already lost a half a billion dollars. Oh, my God. A half a billion dollars. The company was effectively bankrupt. Now, right, it was hard to fix. So the automation was great. Right. Right? It improved the ability to make money, improved the number of transactions. It changed everything, but it had new ways to fail. And those new ways are harder to figure out. They're harder to respond to quickly. And when they, and when you don't, it can have big consequences. In this case, a half a billion dollars and the company is finished. So that's what we always worry about. When you increase the robots or the autonomy, it changes the way things fail. Right. And you need to invest something to figure out and build the capability to manage those potential failures. Because if you don't, failures of more autonomous systems have bigger consequences. 
Okay. Maybe that they fail less, but when they fail, it matters more. Right. Man, so so I think, you know, like the, the, the getting freaked out part of this, and, and you're explaining a lot of things, again, the idea of like, well, don't be freaked out about this, but then there actually are real-life problems that could happen. The idea of uh, automation or robots or whatever becoming so commonplace that then, A, something that is commonplace is either hacked by a person or used for bad by a person with the person making that decision, or like in the example you just gave, it sort of goes haywire on its own. Is is that like, is that going to be a concern that just continues to grow because society is just going to have more autonomous systems in place in many more? I have a Roomba in my house, right? So in 30 years, am I going to have a bigger Roomba that looks more kind of like a robot that cleans my whole house, but that someone well, could hack and tell that Roomba to kill me? Like, is that well, where we're headed? So it, it's not headed, it's already here. Oh, great. Okay. All right. The Roomba's so going to kill me. it's already here. So, what was it, a year ago, roughly, there was a distributed denial of service attack that took some key links in the national uh, internet. And there was major internet losses, uh, especially in the Northeast. Um, nothing would work. And everyone comes to depend on internet access for their businesses and activities right. and communications in a dis- local disaster or something. How did it happen? Right? What you're describing in your house is called the Internet of Things. Every, everything in your house has a computer. Right. It has some autonomy. It, it's connected to the net. And what happened is they all have terrible security. Okay. So hackers go in and take over the computers and all these devices in the in your home, and they use them. They don't need a lot of processing power to send messages to attack critical nodes in the internet. And so what it does, it overloads the nodes that can't do the normal function, and it brings the internet down in a region or area. And so they were hijacking the things that were valuable, that were giving you a little bit of convenience in your house, and they were hijacking them to attack the Internet, do something against the national productivity. Now, we don't know why this attack happened or who was really behind it, but it's an example that the risks change, and you have to do things to manage the new risks. It's already happening. and. You, and this means that there are changes, and those changes, what, what do those changes mean? It means when everybody says it's going to be cheaper, it's not necessarily okay. going to be cheaper, right? It might be cheaper because you can buy a consumer product for your house, but if you have to have those products have better computer security, then there's an extra cost, if you're going to have a, a drone that is available to everybody that's inexpensive, you go, wait a minute, it needs to be more robust, it has to have better programming, it has to have better security, it has, there's a whole bunch of upgrades when you make it work for real, in the real world, with all the variations that go on. And so the idea that these things, yes, you can make them cheap, but it exposes new risks and leaves you vulnerable to new risks. So the economic, in fact, one of the things we saw in 
all the companies trying to brief us in these national committees about the future is everyone is giving us a lousy cost-benefit analysis because they're leaving out a lot of stuff about software security, software maintenance, right? Think about your car. Yeah. Right? When you buy a car now, you bought the car. It just works, right? But for cars with self-driving functions, you have to update the software. Right. Right? Think about your... uh, a company's computer system. If you don't patch it regularly, if you don't update it, if you don't keep it up to date, you increase, for example, the security risk, the cybersecurity risks. But now you own the car. Do you pay for the updates? Right. Does the company pay for the updates? Does the company get into financial trouble and says, we're not going to pay for the updates? In fact, we're going to charge you for the updates? Uh, remember when ATMs were free? Right. <laughs> and then ATMs became a revenue source to banks. Um, uh, when is software, you know, are you going to have a dilemma? Do I pay for the update? Well, the car seems to drive fine without the update. Why did they update it? Did they, right, think about your operating system on your computer. You upgrade it because they, it always says bug fixes. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, autocorrect. Right? We, we, we get this hype that the self-driving car will take over the future, and yet our autocorrect mangles our words and right. sends out messages we didn't mean that are often embarrassing or cause new problems uh, because we miscommunicate with those we're connected to. Right. We can't get autocorrect right, and we're going to build and we're going to trust these systems to take over. Right. In the end, what I do and people like me do is say these are always a human machine system. It's always about people as well as a story about machines. And you have to anticipate the new side effects, the new problems, the new risks. And if you do that, yes, these are valuable capabilities. There's no doubt they're valuable, but they change the complexity and they change the risks. So, I mean, what we do think about, it's, it's funny you know, here I am freaked out about certain things, but yet, you know, I mean, like autopilot on an airplane. That's like a robot flying an airplane, right? I mean, that's, that's, right. that's been around for a long time. The, um, you know, ATMs. Yeah, we used to have bank tellers. Now we have ATMs. We're all accustomed to the technology and the automated things that have just sort of happened in our lives. But yet, I'm sort of afraid of what's next. How would you describe how far we are along that path in how automated our society is now compared to how automated it may get in the future. Are we, you know, a decent part of the way there with autopilot and ATMs and things like that? Or are we 1% of the way there compared to where we could be with self-driving cars and drones delivering packages and things in your house that may be down the road you won't have to do much of anything because everything will be automated. How far are we? Well, so that's always the dream people say. And in every cycle, in every generation, I, mean, I usually start a class off with pictures. I have pictures from 1900 of the airplane of the future. Right? It doesn't turn out. Or from the 1920s, right. the city of the future doesn't work out. Um, so our claims about a more highly automated world always turn out to be 
less of a machines take over and people are subservient, right? And they become more of a new interconnected society, interconnected in new ways. It works at new pace. More stuff happens, more productivity, but new kinds of problems, new kinds of roles for people, new kinds of exceptions. So where we are in today's world is, is actually poised on a cliff's edge, right? And on the one hand, we have older styles of automation. And as a, one of the people who trained me a long time ago said, dumb and dutiful automation is, is, can be very valuable. Okay. Right? Things that are dumb and dutiful. Right. Right? I like that. Right? You delegate authority to it. It only does so it only does that lit one little piece and uh and you it doesn't do anything else until you tell it to do something different right but today which people want to move away from dumb and dutiful automation and start saying it's going to make this important decisions on its own it may make oh. moral decisions oh God. decisions on its own right and and in each case where that claim works out, it turns out that the story is really about people. Okay. It's about how people find advantage. How people's advantage conflicts with other people's interests. Okay. It's a story of complexity. And these systems are never as good as advertised. Okay. There are new ways they break. There's new gaps. There's new problems. And so what you find are people, you know, snafu. You remember the snafu word, the American GI invented yes. in World War II? Yeah. Situation normal, all left up? Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, snafu becomes normal in these systems because of the complexity of them. They're not simpler because they're automated. They're more complex. And they connect things together in more complex ways. So snafus are everywhere. So people become the snafu catchers. Okay. In fact, that's the project we're doing. It's called snafu catching. We study and enhance how people will be the snafu catchers, especially as we increase the automation and robotic capabilities and systems we use that service our needs. And so snafu catching is normal, and we need to support snafu catching. And that gets harder the more complex this stuff is. Okay. So what we really see is a complexity crisis. The, the big thing you should remember when everybody talks about autonomy is they confound delegating authority and, what the, and autonomy. Autonomy is what the machine could do by itself. Okay. Right? Do you have a four-year-old? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I have an eight-year-old. Eight-year-old. Yeah. Remember when they were four? Yeah. What are they? They're trying to exert exert their autonomy, and that's why we call it the F and fours, right? Right. I can do that, Daddy. I can do that by myself. Well, that's what robots are like, right? Right. I can do that by myself. Well, what do we do? We worry about right when we give them autonomy, what space we let them safely operate in, and so we miss the fact that. There is a separate thing. And what it can do by itself is great, but we people delegate authority to these machines. Okay. The authority to operate. Over what window does it operate? Um, so talk about the Tesla accident, right? And the Tesla accident happens because computer vision has weaknesses. Right, right. 
It doesn't work well with shadows. It doesn't work well with different illumination conditions. Bright sunlight on wet surfaces after a rain can fool the sensors and the, and the algorithms. And so on a clear day with bright sunlight, the computer sense can't see the truck ahead. And the person's doing something different. Why? Because it's advertised as autopilot. You don't have to drive the car. Right. So the person has delegated authority to the machine, but doesn't understand the limits of its autonomy. Right. Doesn't understand where it will get fooled. So simple lesson. Don't put your Tesla in autopilot on a bright, sunny day, especially if things are wet, where there's a lot of glare and reflection going on. Right. It might get fooled. You know, does it get fooled all the time? No, but sometimes it does. Okay. So you should be in charge in driving. You should take back authority and just use the automation as an assist versus when can I safely delegate authority to the machine? So that's a new, a new capability for people. Now, do you want that? Do you want to have to think about that? Do you want to think about can the machine work well in these conditions? Right. Should you know? Should I drive? No, I'll just drive. I don't want to have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you either trust it or you don't. So, so what we end up with are these varieties of trust, and it becomes very difficult. Yeah. In the more complex world, to say versus the dumb and dutiful. Just be an assist to help me stay in the lane. Just give me alerts if I drift out of the lane. Right. Right? That's valuable automation. Right. But turning all the authority over to the car only works. Remember, you know, Google's car mostly only drives in Northern California where the roads are pretty good and there's no snow and ice. Right. <laughs> uh, Let's see it do know, it in Columbus in the winter when the plows haven't been out. Right, or right now in Columbus where there's potholes popping up yes. everywhere. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, you know, there was a, a, a Google accident in San Francisco with a bus. And of course, all these are blamed on people. Um, but it was hysterical because the lane de- ended. So the Google car is creeping along because it can tell the lane is ending and it wants to merge over. But there's a bus. <laughs> and the bus... What does the bus expect? The bus driver expects the car in the lane that's ending is going to wait and stay out of the way. Right. Because its lane is ending. And so, but it's driving slowly because it's a bus and there's a lane ending. And so you have this slow motion collision as the Google car merges over for some reason thinking the bus is going to get out of its way. Really? <laughs> and the bus is going slow because it's like, what the hell is this car going to do with nobody driving it? Right. Um, NASA has been accumulating statistics on self-driving cars, comparing it to the number of incidents uh, where people need to think about their driving, need to bring their skills to driving, rather than the routine where you're you're half awake and you drive fast. Right. And you count the number, and there's some statistics that allow you some cap- some comparability. And you know the. The cars have, uh, the self-driving cars need the human safety driver to intervene about once every 40,000 miles. People need to intervene in a critical way about once every million miles. Really? So, <laughs> so you know, we drive a lot of miles 
on, on autopilot. Yeah. Right? Uh, we have a pretty good autopilot. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so, yes, there's limits and accidents that we cause. But the idea that, you know, we work in a wide range of conditions. And so it isn't that we shouldn't have more self-driving functions. Again, it becomes, it's a capability that we have to decide how we use safely. Right. Okay. Professor Woods, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll I let you out of here after this. A little better. Oh, well, let me, let me ask this last one. And, and, and I appreciate your insight so much. I find this so interesting. You say, you've said that you've been, um, you know, you're in situations where you're, at meetings and talking with the people in the in this country who are thinking about this and making decisions about this in general the people who are dealing with this right now the smartest people dealing with autonomy and the future of this how smart and responsible are they about this stuff or sometimes do you hear people talk and you, are you engaged in discussions where you think oh my god these people are trying to you know turn the world over to robots and autonomous systems and they have no idea what they're doing. Um, I, I experience the latter than the former. Okay. And sometimes I, I, I talk in these audiences and to these people and say, we need more humble engineering. They're so dreaming of the future. They're so dreaming of, hey, I get to design an airplane. I get to do a new kind of business uh, with new kinds of airplanes uh, that fly themselves. This is going to be so cool. They get so caught up in that that they forget the basics. Okay. Uh, now, some of the basics are different because of the complexity and the new kinds of risks. But in some ways, you have to go back and say, guys, stop believing your own hype. Yep. I know you need to say things to recruit money and get investors. Right? Tesla has to keep getting investment. So I understand that. But if you lose, if you start to believe your advertising, you won't do humble engineering. And sometimes that's what we need, is you go back to the boring, step-by-step -step basics of careful, conservative engineering. Now, people don't want to hear that. They get upset. Yeah. Why? Because they go, there's a new business opportunity. We need to move fast. And I go, I appreciate it. Let's move fast. To do that, you have to also understand the new kinds of accidents you can create. And we can be fast and safe, right? It's not one or the other. Yeah. But to be safe, you have to think about the new complexities and the new risks. Okay. That's the scary part. They're not thinking enough about the new complexities and new risks. It's not that the robots are going to take over your world, right? Because technology is people. Yeah. Right? What makes people people? That we create tools. We wield tools skillfully. We, you know, people are their technology for a hundred thousand years, right? From flint tools to today's computers. So the tools will always be a human story. Those human stories will have new forms of human conflict, and they will have new kinds of risks. And but the robots won't take over your world. Okay, good. In the end, <laughs> that makes me feel better. Okay, I do feel a little better. <laughs> Professor Woods, if there are Ohio State students listening to this or parents of kids who are in college or will be going off to college, what is there a class? Like, if, Even if you're not majoring in this or, or this is not your main field of study, is there a class they could take at Ohio State to get an introduction to this kind of thinking? 
So yeah, we have an introduction. We call it we we it's design of a fancy name, cognitive system, people and, mach- and machines, and how they co- work together, how they cooperate. We have an introduction. It's in systems engineering. We have an introduction, and I do a, an elective in human-centered automation. So oh. we talk about all this, and they actually get to design. They get a mission, and they actually have to design how to coordinate people and new machine capabilities, new autonomous or robotic capabilities to support the mission. And, of course, the mission isn't simple, <laughs> and it has a bunch of complications and risks that they have to handle. Wow. And so they get great fun thinking about that. That's different than the kinds of uh, build a better car. Right. You know, build a build a car that goes further on solar energy or build a car that – um, can can handle a new kind of driving situation, and obviously those developments are going on everywhere. What's rare are these systems courses, these integrated systems courses that look at systems of people and computers, and automation and robots, and say, how do we make them work better? But we're one of, and frankly, Ohio State has been one of the top places for this since 1947. Wow. End of World War II. Ohio State has been one of the top places in the world for studying these systems of people and machines uh, over generations of technology. And in fact, researchers before I got there um, and other researchers who work uh, in this area have made the world a safer place. How you fly today, how you drive today is safer because of work that has been done over the last 60 years at Ohio State. Fascinating. Professor Woods, I'm going to come take your class. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. I thought that was so interesting. I really appreciate it. All right, so that was uh, robot talk, not Buckeye talk. We're back to Buckeye talk. We hope you guys enjoyed that. If you fast-forwarded through Robot Talk, welcome back to uh, football, food, and questions from the listeners. So, Landis, kick us off. What do the people have to say today? Okay, uh, Chad M., who we were just talking about, um, off uh, off the record? <laughs> yeah, off the record, about his five questions this week with my head as his avatar. Yeah, so yeah, so I'll go to his like best football one, I suppose, because he had one about, like, uh, if we're all robots... <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, uh, last year, the most concerning position group coming into the season was probably cornerback, but ended up being linebacker towards the end. Mm. What will be the most concerning position in 2018? That's an interesting question. The most concerning position. Uh, I think it's possible this, the secondary. I mean, if you want to group that together, I think yeah. that we're so accustomed to, um, a first round corner back there. Like when the day comes when there's not one, what's it going to be like? Now we're assuming Jeffrey Okuda is going to be great. We're assuming Kendall Sheffield and David Arnett will have good years. Um, but you don't know a hundred percent for sure. There's a second, there's a safety spot up for grabs. You think Jordan Fuller takes the next, next step. But when you also have a coaching change back there in a lot of ways, we don't know exactly how they're going to work. Grinch and Shiano and, and then Taylor Johnson's replacing Kerry Combs. I don't know that there's one that stands out. I think you could say linebacker, too. I mean, it's not yeah. defensive line. I think you could say offensive line, maybe. But I guess mine would be secondary. But I, I don't know. I think there's a couple you could say. I don't, I'm not super concerned about anyone. I think I would probably say offensive line. 
Um, only because outside of Michael Jordan, like everyone's going to be, maybe not Brandon Bowen if he's the right guard again, but but you're going to have a lot of guys in new spots. You don't know who the right tackle is, and you're pretty sure Brady Taylor's going to be the center, but he might not be. And then Isaiah Prince, while I, like I said earlier, I think he's very improved, is still going to be your left tackle, and I think you can be a little concerned about that if you want to be. So I would say offensive line. I'm going to say wide receiver, and I think it's for mm-hmm. a reason that in the part that we don't know if the potential of this group's already been maxed out. This is going to be the second year in a row we have the same six guys. You're waiting for somebody to break out, and last year that didn't happen. And that can't, that can't happen two years in a row. Someone's going to have to really emerge, and if it doesn't, that that's going to be a problem. I know the I know quarterback situation with Dwayne Haskins, you expect the pass game to improve because you have a more talented thrower in Haskins. But for the second year in a row, we're going to be sitting here for the next six months and thinking, who is going to be the guy? Because there just wasn't a the guy last year. No, I think that's reasonable, too. The guy will be uh, Tate Martell, slot receiver. <laughs> um, Chad asked a million questions, He, uh, but I'll ask another one. He said, uh, will we please do the draft podcast we did last year? I think he's talking about before the spring game, we drafted our own rosters. Oh, did um, people, I thought people didn't like that. He says he thought it was pretty fun. I liked it. If you did not like it, let us know, because I, I would like to do it again. But if Did it's, we do three rosters? Yeah. Okay. I was thinking maybe we should just do... No, I don't, actually, now I don't remember if we did three. I think maybe we only did two. If it was two, would... Like, I had to be, like, commissioner or something and keep track of teams? No, I don't we... know. We can talk about it when we're not recording a podcast. But we might no, do it. No, let's hash it out right now. Yeah. Let's have a 10-minute conversation about a future podcast on the podcast. That may or may not happen. I can't no. remember if we did two. That's okay. podcastception, everybody. No, yeah, we'll do... I can't remember. Okay. We might have done three. We'll do, we'll do, uh, we'll do that if people like it. But tell us. Tell tweet, us if you like Tweet it. at Buckeye Talk Pod. Um, food question from G. Nilly. What are your thoughts on alternative pizza sauces like ranch, barbecue, buffalo, garlic parm? Big, I've said this before, I'm a buffalo chicken pizza connoisseur. I'm, I'm always in for buffalo chicken pizza. I can, I can do without anything else. I like, there's a, like a Thai chicken pizza at California Pizza Kitchen that I get a lot that I like, but I don't really think of it as pizza. So I think on some level, and we've had this discussion before. <laughs> oh, you mean we've broken down pizza to its basic yeah. parts? And done 40 minutes of conversation about that before? Yes, we have. I sort of think that if you are messing with the crust or you're messing with the mozzarella cheese or you're messing with the the pizza sauce, the tomato sauce, that you're not really talking about pizza anymore. You're talking about something else on crust. So Flatbread. And I'm not against that, but... But if you say if you say to me, let's go get pizza, and then you come back or we and you have something that doesn't have those three basic components, I think you've lied to me. If you say let's go out to eat, and then it's like at the place, at the restaurant, or at the thing you're doing, oh, I might get this buffalo chicken pizza, or I might get Thai chicken pizza. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But but it depends how your night began. Did your night begin with an invitation to eat, or did your night begin with an invitation for pizza? Because if you try to give me an alternative sauce and it began with pizza, you've lied to me. I agree with that. Timmy, you went on the alternative pizza or not? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm with Doug. If it's not like your traditional marinara sauce, it's not pizza. You can call like it. But do you? But do you like to eat? Like if I say let's, let's I got a buffalo chicken pizza. You want a slice? You would say no. No. Hmm. Like, I'll have... Well, it says a lot about a person. 
I but I think it was a, I like the to, I like buffalo chicken topping, but I want it on normal sauce and cheese. Yeah, I don't exactly. Well, well you're just an adventurer, Landis. What can we say? I am. Another question from Gene Nelly, and this is like kind of a hot topic. I think I don't know if, how many questions we got, but there were some comments about this on what's today Wednesday Tuesday night. Ohio on Tuesday afternoon, Ohio State offered a 2019 quarterback by the name of Grant. I think it's Gunnell. Or G-U-N-N-E-L-L, who is the number two pro-style quarterback in the class of 2019. He's from Houston. And then last night, Tuesday night, after he got the Ohio State offer, he decommitted from Texas A&M. So Gene Nelly's question is, what do you make of Ohio State offering more pro-style QBs lately? Is it a sign of Urban modernizing his offense? Which is a funny thing to say, like modernizing your offense by getting more drop-back passers, which is what people have been doing for 40 years. Right. Um, I think too much can be made of the pro style and dual threat labels. Like Joe Burrow, Burrow was a dual threat guy, but he's not like uh, he's not Braxton. But he's JT. Yeah, but he's all he can also be a drop back passer. I, I I don't know. I think some recruiting services sometimes do people a disservice by labeling guys that way. There should be an in between. I don't know what that is. Like in the NCAA uh, football video game. They gave you scrambler, pocket passer, and balanced. Oh. And I think you should look at some of these guys as balanced. Um, and Gunnell, like, didn't – he's thrown for almost 12,000 yards in three years. It's absurd. I think I read that he's, like, approaching the career record for passing yards nationally, certainly in Texas. Um, but he also ran for, I think it was 1,000 yards. Or he's run for 1,000 yards in his career. Some of these other guys they've offered who are labeled as pro-style guys have run some. Dwayne Haskins is labeled as a pro-style guy. Clearly, he can run a little bit. Um, so I wouldn't get too bogged down in it. But I do I, I do think, and I think it will be an interesting question maybe to ask now because we've talked a lot about Urban Meyer's quarterback checklist. Uh-huh. It seems like they are now taking arm strength into account with some of the guys they're recruiting. Uh-huh. Which so. makes me disagree with, I think, the point you just made. I think it is saying something. No, I think it's saying something about shifts in the offense. Sure, of course it is. But I also don't. I also wouldn't see pro-style recruit and just assume they're going to throw the ball 70 times. There, I, I don't think the quarterback run will ever disappear from this offense. I think you might see it become less important than it was when JT was here, but I don't think it's going away. I just looked at his stats. Back-to-back 60-touchdown seasons yeah. is absolutely incredible. Well, I can't. Listen, if this guy, if Grant Gannell is like Dwayne Haskins, say he's exactly like Dwayne Haskins. And like Matt Baldwin, too. That's a big shift to me because it's not – like, will it go – Will the quarterback run go away? No, I don't think the quarterback run go away. But the zone read might go away. Like if the zone read goes away and they every now and then run a like a QB draw, you know, with Dwayne Haskins or just a QB lead where, they're okay, we're going to do something. But we're not asking him to read the defense in the moment and make that decision because that's not what he does best because that's kind of not his deal. His deal is... I'm athletic enough and and mobile enough that I can that I can run, but I'm not going to really do that super well, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do super well is drop back and throw. Um, you know, his two Urban's two best quarterbacks 
three best quarterbacks. Man, I don't really know much about Alex Smith or Thurman. But if you look at JT Barrett, Braxton Miller... And Tim Tebow, and maybe Braxton. Well, I think it's kind of fair to lump Braxton because Urban tried to recruit Braxton Mm -hmm. and then happily was absolutely happily took him. They were all run first guys. So it's not like if there's another, I think there's another thing in your, I think the, the way you explained the quarterbacks was good, but I think there's another thing of like, what's the thing they do best? What's the thing they do first? Are they throw first or run first? And so a lot of the best ones, you're run first who can throw. Or you're throw first who can run. They want, whatever guy they get, they want them to have that second thing. They don't want a big, stiff guy who can only pass and absolutely is not a run threat. And they don't want the triple option guy who can't really throw, right? Right. So they want somebody who, who can do both. But I think there's a pretty clear distinction that you can make between are you throw first or run first. And I would say Urban's greatest successes have been with run first guys. And he's currently getting ready to play a throw first guy in Dwayne Haskins. And if you're telling me Matt Baldwin's a throw first guy, mm-hmm. and if Grant Gannell's a throw first guy, that's a switch. That's a yep. philosophical switch that I think is important. It's worth noting. It's worth asking about. And I don't think it would be by accident. I think it is a signal of something. And I think you make a good point that it's like the modernization of football. Urban already modernized football by helping the spread become so prevalent. And now maybe it's going back the other way. Now everybody can defend the spread. Everybody has quick defenders who can tackle in space. And everybody has figured out evening up the numbers and the run game and all that stuff. And now they're daring you to throw to beat you. Well, and so if you can't throw, you're dead. And so now he's prioritizing throw first instead of run first. I think I think when you talk about modernization, I think like drop back passer is the wrong way to think about it. And it's I hate how much this has like become a buzzword. But like the RPO stuff is the new modernization of co- of football offenses, college and pro. We saw the Eagles do a lot of it. They didn't do it actually. Every time Chris Collinsworth said the Eagles ran an RPO in the Super Bowl, they were not running an RPO. Right. Um, but it is something the Eagles did a lot last year, and you're seeing it more in the, in the NFL. Andy Reid does it too in Kansas City. Um, but that requires you – it does require you to make a read. So I, I think I disagree that the read's going away. The read now is just not – you're not reading to keep. You're reading whether or not you're going to throw the ball. Um, but that requires arm strength, I think, because I think you have to be able to like throw that ball off the seam. I think you need to be able to throw that ball in like quick outs, and you have to have good arm strength. That I think they wanted to do that last year, but frankly, JT Barrett, I don't think has the arm required to do that effectively all the time, which is why you saw more of the shallow cross and mesh stuff because that suits JT's skill sets a little bit. Um, but we we saw like I'll. This is not to say that CJ Saunders should play because people love CJ Saunders. The throw that Dwayne Haskins made to C.J. Saunders against the UNLV, it's like right down the hash mark, like a bullet. That's the kind of throw you need to be able to make when you're running this stuff. So I think that is why arm strength, you're seeing it come back into play when Ohio State's evaluating high school quarterbacks. Yeah, you need to – you have to ask Urban to redo his checklist. Yeah. And you created the checklist. Right, and he won't redo the check. Like, it's, it, it'll, it's – you have to find the right way to ask it, I think, because he's not going to redo the checklist. He'll – and it's – the checklist is all like he wins and he's a competitor and like he can extend the play and all that's still true. But it's finding the right way to get him to admit that now arm strength matters when he said before that it hasn't. Yeah. 
All right, you have like six months to work yeah. on that question <laughs> to phrase it exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Next question is from Connor Bailey. He says, uh, coaching talents like Ryan Day and Alex Grinch are expected to move on after a short time at Ohio State. How long would one be willing to stay if they were the assumed successor to Urban Meyer? And after Meyer's new extension, will it be one of those two or someone else and when? There's a lot in that question. Um, I guess like the first, do we think that either one of the, like we talked about this before, is any one of those, either one of those guys coaching waiting? No. They, I don't think so either. College football tried the coach and waiting stuff. I did a coach and waiting story eight years ago. Remember when Will Muschamp was the coach and waiting at Texas, and then he like was like the heck with this and yeah. left yeah. Uh, and took the Florida job. Um, somebody people uh, they tried the coach and waiting at Maryland. Wasn't James Franklin the coach and waiting at Maryland behind Ralph Friedgen and then left to go to Vanderbilt and went to Vanderbilt? Yeah, and like Jimbo was coach and waiting behind. Uh, yeah. Bowden, that worked. But and I did a story a about, like, was Luke Fickle, would they have would they do a coach in waiting at Ohio State? But here's the deal in the end. When you're at a big-time program, you you don't get to be the coach by being there. You go get someone else's coach. Right. You go steal a really good coach from a lesser program. So, no. Like, no. Like, there's no, there's no point in even thinking about this because if Alex Grinch... Grew is from Central Ohio and played college football in Ohio, and maybe Ohio State is his dream job. Who knows? The best way for Alex Grinch to get his dream job is to be here for a couple years and then go like win the national championship at Washington, or go go make the college football playoff at Arkansas or whatever, and then see when Urban retires. But you cannot sit around here. And think you're going to be the head coach at Ohio State. Luke Fick, guess who really wants to be the head coach at Ohio State? Luke Fickle. And in the end, Luke Fickle got his shot here and it was weird and everything. But he all, even he knew, as long as he waited here and stayed here, he knew if you want to end up here, you've got to leave and come back. Yeah. So everybody has to leave and come back. So there's no point in thinking about that. And, and honestly, the coach that is going to replace Urban Meyer someday is going to be like the most successful guy at some other school in that moment who kind of makes sense. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If Urban Meyer hadn't been available, Gary Patterson might be the head coach at Ohio State right now. And Gary, who is like, why? Because he was really good. Yeah. So you have to wait. It's like, you know, it's fun to talk about this stuff. Tom Herman's not going to leave Texas for Ohio State. You know, like there's no – to think about Shiano or Grinch or – any other guy, Kevin Wilson, I don't know. It's just the next head coach at Ohio State is is Lincoln Riley. Right. Or whatever. You know, guy X who's really good somewhere else. I agree. Mm-hmm. Alec Carlisle says, what's your opinion of – he said Tyreek Smith, but I'm pretty sure he meant Tyreek Johnson. What is your opinion of Tyreek Johnson deciding to make his mark at cornerback instead of safety, and does this mean we get a new evaluation of the cornerback position? Um, I don't think Tyreek Johnson decided anything. I think you were told where you play. But the second part of the question I think is more interesting, and I touched on it earlier. Do you guys think that with the coaching turnover in the back end of the defense that there is going to be a reevaluation of everything and not maybe necessarily the guys who we would assume would step up, maybe they won't step up and some other young guys will play instead? I think there will be. I mean, you're naturally going to have two new voices in that secondary coaching room with Tabor Johnson and Alex Rich. It's only... 
it makes sense to ha- that you need to do that just to kind of get because you're stepping into a new room. You you've never coached these guys before, so you're just you got to evaluate the guys in your own criteria. Who you think is good? Who you think is filling out the rest of that pecking order? I guess in that secondary room. So you wouldn't be doing your job, I think, as a new coach coming in if you didn't do your own evaluation based on your own criteria because you're going to coach these guys different from how Kerry Combs has coached them. What do you think? I do think, I mean, they've had a lot of success. They move corners to safety. Jordan Fuller could have been a corner. Yeah. Damon Webb could have been a corner. They move corners to safety. So I don't, I know what Johnson said this when we had the, uh, had the guys, the early enrollees the other day. Yeah. He was talking about this. Um, with the young guys who could go either way, you just you can't know. It's like you, it, it depends on what they need. Um, he probably fits the body type of what they want at corner, but you know what? If, if uh, I don't know, if they have injuries and a guy leaves and whatever, it's like that, that's going to help determine it as much as anything. But, but in the end... They want safeties with cover capabilities, and you get that by having guys play safety who know corner, who have, who have either in high school or here have played some corner. So if he thinks he was a safety who's going to be a corner here, maybe he's a safety who's going to be a corner here for a little bit to get him ready to be a safety here. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Donald Seco, or I think it's Seco, says, when can we expect to see some 2019 commitments? Um, they have one. I think there might be some people who don't know they have one just because a lot of stuff happened with 2018 after Doug Nestor committed. Doug Nestor is a four-star offensive tackle, like borderline five-star, who committed to Ohio State last year, so I forget when he, when he committed. Um, but he's the first guy in 2019. Um, but I would expect, like, the recruiting calendar changes. We talked about this last week. You can do sp- uh, spring official visits now. So I don't think you're going to see – much happen until April and guys start taking visits April, May, and June. I will think I do think you'll see like a flurry of commitments in that time period. Um, but between now and then, I think it's possible maybe you'll see like a, an Ohio guy commit. Um, and this isn't like it's just like Ohio guys get an Ohio State offer and they're told they can jump on board. They commit earlier. Um, so like Noah Potter is a defensive end from Menor, Ohio. He's a teammate named Ryan Jacoby, who's an offensive lineman. Both those guys have offers. I would not be surprised one bit if either one of those guys commits like tomorrow. And Noah Potter's Micah Potter's, Micah brother, Potter's right? younger brother. Yeah. Could Kate Stover be another guy? Kate Kate Stover's committed. Like he hasn't said it. That guy's been committed since he was like eight years old. Who's that? He's a linebacker defensive end from Lexington. I think he'll play linebacker at Ohio State. Um, yeah, he's like every time he comes to. Ohio State camper, like, did you commit yet? And he says no, but he will. Um, so those kind of guys, like, you might see something like that in the next couple weeks. But in terms of, like, splashy five-star kid from Florida commits to Ohio State, I think you probably have to wait until those spring official visits start happening. Agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, Greg Miller wants to know if uh, Doug puts on a happy face for Valentine's Day. Um... I guess the insinuation being that you're otherwise angry and have a yeah. Um, no, no, I don't like to let holidays dictate when my happy face comes out. Yeah. I like to decide it on my own. Frickin' a. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jason M. Antris, our boy. JMA. Can Martell win the starting quarterback job in practice, or does Haskins have to lose the QB job in a game? I don't think he can win the job. 
As much as I want him to, I don't think he can win the job. I think the only way he wins the job... I don't think Haskins has to lose it in the game. I think Haskins can lose it in practice. I think the one way... Tate, Tate just can't... If Tate just can't be great. I think if Tate is great, that does not win him the job. I think Haskins, in practice on a regular basis, would have to make Urban Meyer nervous that he's going to chuck the ball to the other team all the time. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that we have talked for years. We like a quarterback who's willing to take a risk. I don't know if Urban likes it. Urban is walking a very fine line on a quarterback turning the ball over. And Dwayne Haskins, we know Dwayne Haskins is going to make plays. But if Urban feels in practice, like the turnover to big play ratio is not going the way he likes it, and Tate Martell is great, and Tate Martell is running the zone read and being a run threat and running a very comfortable offense, that Urban Meyer thinks, God, he got picked off again. And they put Tate in, and Tate's like, zoop, doop, doop. And Urban goes, God, that looks good. I think that's there. But I think that's what it would take. So that's why I don't think it's 100%. But I think yeah. it's more in Dwayne Haskins' hands than it is in Tate Martell's hands. I don't know that... I mean, Dwayne Haskins is really good. We've seen that. Mm-hmm. You know that Dwayne Haskins has a level of capability that he's going to do a lot of the right things and he can make big plays. So you know... So I don't think that Tate Martell... I mean, I don't know what Tate Martell would have to look like to just pass Haskins. Do you guys agree with that? That, like, yeah, I think but, Tate might have that in him, but I don't know if that would even be enough. Yeah, like, the only way for him to have a chance would he have to be special. Like, not just great. He'd have to be special. Like, so good that if Dwayne slips up at all, then that margin would have to... That's the only way that margin could be close. Like, Tate can't just be great. He has to be almost perfect to even have a shot. Yeah, I think it's more on Haskins than it is on Martell. I agree with you, Doug. Second part of Jason's questions, uh, question is, what is the perfect condiment on a hot dog? You don't eat hot dogs? No hot dogs. Do you eat hot dogs? Yes. Perfect condiment on a hot dog. Despite what Jason says, it's ketchup. Just ketchup? Yeah, I, I, I admittedly have wanted to try, you know, at Jacob's at Progressive Field in Cleveland, they have the slider dog, which I think is like bacon, macaroni, and cheese, and Fruit Loops. Oh, my I've God. I've admittedly wanted to try that. I've never gotten around to it. I don't like to get weird with the hot dog. I like uh, ketchup, mustard, uh, onion, and relish every time. The best condiment on a hot dog is a hamburger. Is a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Steele, who from the 2017 recruiting class will make the biggest contribution in 2018? I say Chase Young. Are we all in agreement that it's Chase Young? I mean, that's going to be a really – like the things that we're seeing, like we went nuts. I mean, everybody did, but I'm covering the 2017 class, right? Yeah. This okay. is the greatest class ever. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah. It is. <laughs> I, I mean, J.K. Dobbins might win the Heisman, so maybe him? <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe J.K. Dobbins? I mean, the thing that hurts is I'll be curious to see what the, what the wide receiver contribution actually ends up being from that class, but I think, I think Chase Young, J.K. Dobbins, Jeffrey Okuda, and Baron Browning are all on the table. Who, am I, who else am I missing? Okuda. You said Okuda. Okuda. Yeah, but those, I mean, those, were the, those were the big ones, right? Uh... Are all on the I mean, table. Sheffield was technically in the 17 class. Yeah. Um, Wyatt Davis, if we think he can win a starting job in the offensive line, he was another five-star in that class. 
But yeah, but I mean, it's definitely on the table for. I mean, but I think it's it's either Dobbins or Young. I would say Dobbins just because I think he's a Heisman candidate. I'll say Young. I think Dobbins just because I think he'll do more for the offense. I think Young will do for defense because we know Dobbins is going to contribute the most on offense. Austin Chip at Chappelle Austin says, uh, "Is it possible Tate Martell gets moved to a different position, such as slot receiver?" Like I, I've heard a story about this a couple, like right after the. Cotton Bowl, right? Yeah. Um, like, not on a permanent basis. He's a quarterback, and if he's not a quarterback, he'll be a quarterback somewhere else. Um, but I think, like, again, there's a role for him as a slot receiver, as a decoy in the backfield, as a wildcat quarterback who's actually just a backup quarterback taking snaps, not in garbage time. Um, so, yeah, like, I, w- I wouldn't call it a total position change. I would just, like, assume there'll be, like, a, a Tate Martell package of plays that moves him around the formation and makes sure he's at least somewhat part of the offense. Because is it not? I mean, Tate Martell is an extraordinary athlete. Yes. And there is a, a definite possibility that in a given situation with what they want to do in that situation against a certain defensive look at a certain time in the game, Tate Martell is one of the best 11 players to put on the field to make that happen. Yeah. So I think there's the, and we've talked about this, there's the thing to like keep Tate interested. Mm-hmm. They want to keep Tate here. So I think it would be smart to do that because that's a smart thing to do with quarterbacks especially. But I actually think there are things that, you know, it's like, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to give Tate Martell an opportunity to get the ball in space and do something. I think that's there. I think in terms of elusiveness, guys who are elusive with the ball in their hands, Tate Martell might be number one. If he's not number one, he's number two behind Dobbins. Yep. So it's just important to keep in mind. Uh... Let's see. Which gas slash convenience store has the best fare for a traveling sports reporter? That's from John Darrow. He says Northern Virginia Northern Virginia would be a toss up between Sheets and Wawa. There are no Wawas here, and there aren't really. The only time you encounter a Wawa traveling in the Big Ten is when you go to Rutgers, and if like you make the right turn when you're going to Maryland. Oh yeah. What would you say? Are you a Wawa diehard? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's been long uh, a dream of mine to make a store that is a combination of Sheets and Wawa, which is basically just Wawa hoagies, but they come with french fries. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like, like, there, you'll find people who are from eastern Pennsylvania in particular who love Wawa and think that Sheets is trash. I disagree with that. Really? I see the merits of both. Yeah. Is there one here, Tim, that you're a big fan of? A particular uh, uh, brand of convenience store? I admittedly don't frequent convenience stores that much, particularly really? gas station. I'm a guy who just get the gas and go, because I'm not normally a guy who's on road trips that much outside of football season. I will say that it's a very specific thing, but UDF for a convenience store yeah. has a good ice cream selection. Dynamite milkshakes. Yeah, they do. I love their milkshakes. That, that like Sheets and Wawa are more like if you want like a sandwich and stuff. You can't get a sandwich at UDF. Right. But I am not often looking for a sandwich. I'm always looking for a sandwich. <laughs> in a convenience store. But if it's like, oh, look, it's like a buy one scoop of ice cream, get one free on everything that has peanut butter in it at UDF. And then the ice cream's pretty good. Yeah. Okay, last question. I thought this was a fun question. From Alan Kid. People ask questions, and I, we, we answered them if we didn't ask your question specifically, I think. Um, Alan Kitchen said, what out-of-conference game do you wish Ohio State would schedule so that you could travel and cover, cover it. It could be due to great weather, great food, legendary stadium, game atmosphere, etc. Tim? I would say 
Except based on some of the criteria, I would say UCLA because I've always wanted to go to the Rose Bowl. Okay, it's a good one. I was thinking when I, when I first saw that question, I was like Hawaii, no doubt. But then I thought like Hawaii stinks. That game would be like seventy to nothing. Yeah, and it would be like a uh, it would be grossly irresponsible for our company to pay to send us to Hawaii oh, right. to cover a game that would be seventy to nothing. Plus, if you go to Hawaii, you can't just spend two days in Hawaii. You got to spend a week there. True. Right. Uh, so I would probably yeah California. Um, it's like they, I know they played at USC not that long ago, but I've never been to like the Coliseum. So USC or UCLA, I think, or no, yeah, I think those are the two. That's my pick. So I've been very like, I've thought about this a lot. Like in my time on the beat, I've covered a game at Texas, at USC, at Washington, at Miami, Florida, um, at Virginia Tech, which is kind of like. Whatever, cool environment. Um, but but a lot of uh, a lot of different places. Who was the one? Who was their non con Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. The one that's missing. I mean, I think it's they don't do anything with the SEC. And in my time on the beat, they've had a Georgia series scheduled and canceled it. They've had a Tennessee series scheduled and canceled it. So for me, it would be the SEC. I would love to go to LSU and go to Death oh, Valley. Yeah. Death Valley would be sweet. I would love to go to Florida and go to the swamp. I'd love to go to Old Miss and go to the Grove or whatever. I don't know, but they don't like they don't do that because that's like not how the SEC rolls, really. I mean, so, see, go ahead. You can finish your point. I mean, it's like, I, and I don't know what it, you know. I don't want to go to. I don't care about. it. I don't know. It'd be the. I mean, LSU would be number one for me. LSU. That's a shout out to Ryan Ginn. But LSU would be number one, or maybe Old Miss. I uh, made a terrible mistake in not factoring the food situation into my answer. So I would like to change it to anywhere in the SEC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This isn't SEC-related. Florida State would be a place I'd love to go see. Selfishly, because I've always wanted to see the tomahawk chop in person, the Seminole War chant, because I always thought that was one of the coolest things in college football. Yeah. All those white people would tend to be Indians. <laughs> and Notre Dame's really cool. Have you guys ever been to a game at Notre Dame? I've not. never been in South Bend. I would like yeah. to go there. I've driven yeah. through South Bend. I've never been to South Bend. Yeah, so um, I have not been there for an Ohio State game, but I've been there. So that's a cool place to go. But I just – I think I would enjoy – I think it would be interesting to watch SEC fans in their element on a game day because we've yeah. seen Ohio State play SEC teams in bowls, but but I want to see SEC fans in their natural state. Um, and I think that would be cool because I know that's when, when people come to Ohio – you know, if you were asking this question – uh, of somebody who covers Oklahoma or USC or Alabama or somebody else, lots of people would have Ohio State on their list because you want to see – well, you want to see Script Ohio. You want to see 108,000 people in the stadium. But you want, you know that Ohio State fans are passionate and you want to see what they're like in their home stadium. So that's just – I think to see that – and I know they played at what, LSU like in 88 or something. I think they had a home and home with LSU. I was LSU. born in 88. So um, baby Bill Landis might have been at that game, but but that would be fun. So it definitely would be an SEC answer for me. That's it. That's it. Okay. Basketball interviews. We went over two hours because of the robots. So blame the robots. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll continue to drop in some basketball podcasts as they continue on this run. Next basketball game is Thursday night at Penn State. Then they're at Michigan on Sunday. We'll continue with football. Uh, we know that. They will start spring football the first week in March. Is it March 6th? 
first day? Tuesday, March 6th. So they have two practices before they then have spring break for a week, which is how they do it now. So we're only a couple weeks away from the start of spring football, so this podcast will continue to gear up for that. You can keep reading us at cleveland.com slash OSU. Tim has a cool thing going right now where he did a survey, um, did different questions with the early enrolled guys that we talked to on signing day, and it's some insight into how these guys think, how they got recruited by to, uh by Ohio State, why they liked Ohio State, how they arrived at their decisions, that kind of stuff. It's kind of fun. And uh, Landis continues to crank out basketball stories. So that's good. So thanks to you guys. Hope the robot talk was a little something different. Um, We're going to have some more guests coming up. I'll tease a little bit. We're hoping to have Kyle Snyder on. I I was going back and forth with Ohio State people again about that. It sounds like that's going to happen, so we help. Hope to have Kyle Snyder, the gold medal wrestler, on. Can we have him in person and have him wrestle Tim? We will have him wrestle Tim. Over under, you get to wrestle Kyle Snyder. You're both standing. How soon does he pin you? Uh, four seconds. He pinned me like a second and a yeah. half, so I'm not trying to insult you. But it's, yeah. You, you, the guy who does CrossFit, you might last a little longer than, than Doug and I would like. Yeah, it just depends how fast you can run yeah. <laughs> before he catches you. I can't run fast at all. Um, so hopefully that's coming up. We want to have some other uh, college football guests to talk about Ohio State in the national context as we approach spring football. So we'll keep doing that, but mostly we will keep it to the core group of the three of us talking about football and food. At Buckeye Talk Pod, at Tim Bielek, at Bill Landis 25, at Doug Lee Maurice. Those are your Twitter handles to follow. Cleveland.com slash OSU. Listen on Google Play, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, anywhere else. Drop those five-star reviews at your convenience, and happy Valentine's Day. And that was Buckeye Talk.